for you today. Hey, Paul, don't forget to call the dispatcher about that red signal. What? Hey, you again? What happened to my regular conductor? Even though I don't know why I need one. I am your regular conductor, Paul. No, you're not. What happened to Ryan? He's got more seniority than you. Apparently you didn't want the job. I got force assigned. What? This is a good job. That's what I thought, but let's see. I got this email from him. Hey, Chris, you can have that job. I hope you enjoy it. Paul's a cranky old... Okay, that's enough. I get it. I never liked him anyway. Fine. So I have to call dispatch? Yep. Okay, so what's our designation this month? We're the SMRH P1 with the MRH 913 leading, if you ask. He probably already knows. All right. AMRH P1 calling MRH podcast dispatcher over. Yeah, he's probably playing Galaga or something. You mean Galaga? Yeah, Galaga, Galaga, tomato, tomato. <laughs> nah, he's in the Mech Warrior online now. He's not really a Galaga guy. Okay. SMRHP1 to the MRH Podcast Dispatcher. Over. MRH Dispatcher answering. Who's calling? Lionel Strang? No. No. I told you before, Lionel. No. No. No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to give you, no, no, I'm not going to give you permission to pass the red signal, and I'm not going to give you a signal either. No, I don't care how long you've been waiting. I know you've been waiting a long time. Well, that probably has something to do with you constantly calling me Steve, doesn't it? All right, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I said no, and I meant no. Look, I've got other more important tasks to run, so MRH, Dispatcher out. Anyway, um, SMRHP1, are you ready to go yet? Sure thing, Steve. SMRHP1, are you ready to go yet? Sure thing, Steve. What did you say? Mother of freaking Pearl. Be quiet. Let me talk to it on the radio. But I just... Rookies. Uh, MRH Podcast Dispatcher. Sorry about that. We're having a little trouble with the radio. No, we weren't. I just said... Be quiet. Uh, that's affirmative. SMRHP1 is ready to go. Annoying conductor and all. Yeah, I know how that goes. All right. Um, should be ready to go. I'll, be, I'll put that uh, signal in for you, and you'll be able to go on your way momentarily. Thanks, Dispatch. SMRHP1 out, and this is so dumb. Okay, and as we've been doing in the past... Jim's got a shout-out for, uh, what is Jim, a uh, supplier? Uh, yes, Nano Oil. I don't okay. know what the name of the, I don't know what the name of the actual company is, but it's Nano Oil. <laughs> Nano, Nano Oil is not the name of the company. That's the point. That's how I'll it, look it up for you. Them. Hey, Jim, I'll look it up for you right now since I have a browser open. There you go. We'd like to shout-out to, we don't know who they are, and we're not sure what they do, but they did a good <laughs> job anyway. Well, we, we know what they do. We don't know what they're called. 
What do they do? Nano oil. I think his name is Nano Oil. It is. Its name yeah. is indeed Nano Oil. Well, no, I know that's the name of the oil, but that is not the name of the company it gets shipped from. Uh, but it, I don't it's think just like they, Kleenex. I don't... <laughs> Kleenex. It's, uh, well. the, the name of the company, the URL is nanooil.com. So, well, I'll, I'll just say Nano Oil. Yeah. But no, I'm just going to say Nano Oil. That's all. Yeah, that'll work. Last month, I ordered some Nano Oil. And I haven't really had a chance to use it yet, but my point uh, is going to be about their service. Now, I, I placed my order online on Saturday morning, I think it was. Maybe it was one in the afternoon my time. The company is located in California, not mistaken, and uh, placed my order on a Saturday afternoon. I got a email saying, we've received your order, thank you, which is fairly normal. I then received, your order has shipped. And I said, huh, that's pretty impressive for a Saturday, uh, since I had ordered it on a Saturday afternoon. Well, so, you know, three days. I think, you know, if I had it on Wednesday or Thursday, I'd be satisfied. I'm not in a big rush for this stuff. I go to my mailbox on Monday, and I had it from California. That is impressive, even if you did hear me over the motorcycle. That's very fast. Yes, that's very fast. Now, I don't know if that says something for them or the United States Postal Service, but uh, it was sent for a class mail, and uh, I was impressed that they shipped the order on a Saturday anyway. Yeah, one day. one. You and know, you got I, it when? I ordered it on Saturday afternoon, and I got it on Monday. Holy moly. Yeah. They must have put that on a first-class flight out of California or something and sent it over to, to Jim Lincoln right there. I, I, apparently. Jim is special. He is special. Well, yes, but I never did have to ride on the shortcut. <laughs> <laughs> so were you using the oil on your uh, Lego trains? On my Lego trains? I don't have Lego trains. <laughs> it's the plasticine train, which he wouldn't, he wouldn't send me because he was afraid it would melt in shipping. Well, we're and just going to have to start re- doing replicas of that for you. There you go. <laughs> Do an injected model or model of that. And the pink and uh, the pink and blue plasticine. Yeah, yeah. Just do a, a plastic injected model of that. Yeah. No, <laughs> thank you. That's not necessary. It has to be that one. I want the original. <laughs> no copies. No copies. No copies. I mean, it's just not the same. To, to kick this off, I uh, just want to introduce the boys from Athern, Shane Wilson and Mike Hopkins. Uh, Shane, is Shane. maybe you could describe what you do for uh, Athern, and Mike, could you also give us a, a little background on what you guys supposed to do for Athern? Okay, I'll go first. Basically, I'm the director of product development, so I, uh, I oversee the, uh, the development team. Uh, we're responsible for, obviously, all of the engineering all of the development, the artwork, the decoration, the packaging of all of our of all the Athern Roundhouse uh, products. And then my role, this is Shane. My role is the marketing side of the house. So I think uh, I work with our um, advertising team on all of our print media. Uh, work, I take care of all of our social media and uh, anything to do with like the announcements themselves, uh, any kind of outbound communication uh, from Athern. Now, I understand there's been two pretty big announcements of brand-new models from Athern. 
uh, one over at the national convention, then one just last weekend over at the La Mesa Marrero Club. Would you guys be interested in uh, sharing those with us? So at the National Trade Show, we unveiled the uh, all-new Genesis HOSCP45. This is the first time that this locomotive has been available uh, from a mass production plastic company. Uh, three different variants. We're doing Southern Pacific with several road-specific details. You know, the standard SP details like the L window cab, and, and on the front you'll have the SP light package. But then a lot of specific details like the uh, icicle breakers front and rear, uh, the bell mounted on the roof, the water field being in the correct location. Uh, of course, with the steam generator, it's a little bit different than what the Great Northern is going to have. We're also doing uh, GN. The GN, uh, some of the late breaking things we've, we've got some feedback on. It will actually have the rotating beacon on, uh, on the cab. will have black paint to represent the cap that's on the top. And a lot of other uh, GN-specific details like the water fills in a little bit different place than the SP. It's going to have the placards uh, that say Great Northern along with the Rocky the Goat symbol on the handrails. Uh, and then, uh, then you, the third version that we have is the Erie Lackawanna. And then EL is actually the freight version. Version. So at the rear of the locomotive, it comes to a point rather than being flat. Uh, it's going to have all of the low profile details that uh, EL is known for, like the dynamic brake fan. Uh, the radiator fans, the T vent, uh, and also have a special bracket for the horn uh, that uh, sticks out from the front of the cab uh, on the locomotive. So, kind of an overview of the three. Mike, any other details I might have missed, or more that we should add? No, nothing other than the fact. I mean, it's obviously they're, they're Genesis, so they're going to be available with and without sound. And, you know, they have the same high level of detail that you would uh, come to expect from Genesis. Uh, again, as you know, as Shane, Shane touched on a lot of the, the specific parts, but again, the, you know, the point of Genesis is is road name and road number specific level of detail. So we're you know we we like in the Genesis line we like to continue to push the envelope and take it to another level of detail. And then this past weekend, uh, we got to give a, a big thank you to the La Mesa Club as well as the San Diego Marrero Museum. They really rolled out the red carpet for us on Saturday afternoon and our guests from the Athern Express rail car excursion. Uh, we were able to hide basically in one of the staging yards our new tank train release and then roll it out on the Tehachapi Loop uh, where we did a uh, quick presentation to the folks that were on hand as well as recorded a new video. And this is also an all-new model from the ground up. Uh, really went to a lot of effort to make this one as real as, as possible. Two different variations, the, the 282 number series and the 486 number series. There's a lot of detail differences between the two, and I'll let Mike explain what those details are. Yeah, the two classes were built at two different times, and so there are some subtle differences, things like tank saddles are, uh, are different shape, the, uh, the walkway detail, different locations, some of the fittings for the uh, for both the uh, the transfer system and the the purge system uh, have different details as well. While they're both 23,000 gallon cars, um, again some subtle differences. So we're you know again trying to go to that extra level, give the consumer a little bit more variety in the product. One of the things we worked on at length too was the flexible hose that connects each car uh, to make sure that it would uh, operate on both an 18 inch radius curve. That's the minimum. We recommend a 22. Uh, of course, the bigger the radius, the better it will operate. 
we were running them on the loop uh, at uh, the museum uh, and both forwards and backwards with absolutely no issue at all. One thing that I experienced, I had a, I had the, the, the model die casting tank train from way back and that was a big issue was that flexible hose piece between the, the cars. I mean, it, we couldn't even get it to go over like a 48 inch radius curve reliably. So did you trial out uh, different types of rubber hoses between each car to, to kind of find the optimal, um, optimal between looks and then also operation? Well, basically, what we, you know, basically we had we laid out the product spec, which is what we do for any products, and worked with our engineering team over in China. And based on the product specs, they selected the material uh, that they thought was going to give us going to give us the performance that we had asked for. And quite frankly, first shot out of the gate, we got exactly what we wanted. So really, uh, you know, now certainly, obviously, from the days of the old MDC car, technology's changed. Rubbers, you know. Uh, polymers, you know, definitely the materials available today that weren't available, you know, you're talking about 20 plus years, I think, probably for that MDC tank car. So, you know, it, uh, obviously the technology has changed, but uh, we were very fortunate that we were able to get something that worked very well. It actually has got even got the little sag in it uh, that you that you would see on the prototype or uh, at the middle between the two cars. So it, got, it has a real nice look. Uh, again, here here in the office, we actually ran you know strings of seven, eight, nine cars through 18-inch radiuses, through number four turnouts without a problem. Uh, again, like Shane said, obviously the bigger the radius, the more the more the better it's going to look. But the cars will be coupled together with the hose intact. They will negotiate an 18-inch radius. That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you how many how many times I've fussed around like trying to find a different material hose to put in between and now that you guys already have something dialed in and working that's outstanding uh well will the tank train come with your genesis trucks yes the tank train is the tank train is a genesis product and so they will have the genesis trucks with the rotating caps uh bearing caps uh the way we're going the way we're going to be selling them is we're going to be selling them in a manner where you will be able to purchase an uh an ab set which is basically the two end cars and then 10 different uh, intermediate cars with different numbers for the same group. The idea is that depending on the size of, the, uh, size of your layout, you know, anybody can have a tank train. If you wanted to have a, a two-unit two set, you could do that. You could add as many as you want. Typically, the, uh, you know, the trains that ran over to Atrophy, which is obviously is where we unveiled the cars, uh, typically ran, I think, 11, 12 car sets. But um, again, that could be you know you could you could tailor it to the size of your own layout and do anything from two up to whatever many you want or multiple sets. That's fantastic. We're talking about one of my all-time favorite trains, and I grew up in Southern California, so it's just an icon of the era that I model. Anyway, I'm, being an ST modeler, I'm just like in hog heaven right now. <laughs> I got. One of my favorite locomotives and also one of my favorite trains uh, coming up here from Athens. It's really exciting for me as a modeler. Could you just share yeah, some I of the, I, the, the – oh, Jimmy, you got something? No, I was just going to uh, pipe in along with that. I I spent a week rail fanning to Hatchapi, fortunately, at the end, the end of the, the cans era. So the cans – 
watching the cans on the on the uh, on Tehachapi was a singular experience. There was wasn't anything like it. You knew they were coming. They're you know they're similar to coal trains, but you know when you have twelve SD forty fives on it, you know slugging up the mountain at about ten, it was uh, quite the thing to see. Yeah, and while we're while we're on the subject, real quick before we segue into something else, I want to bring up the fact that while we unveiled them on Tehachapi, while you know we're in Southern California, and that's the area that we recognize them from. These you know these cars are cars that are are national. Uh, the cars actually, are, you know, they, they they ran in the east. These same car classes, we've got photographs running on trains back in the east. These, uh, I believe, these are the same cars that run on what people now call the coast cans that come down the uh, the coast. Uh, you know, and so these cars are not just a Tehachapi car. While that that is the signature area that everybody that most rail fans or modelers are going to recognize them from, these are cars that are applicable to other parts of the country. Um, so, you know, they're not just, you know, not just a Southern California model. And so for modelers that model other parts of the, com- uh, the country, these could be applicable in other areas as well. So I think that's a, something we want to highlight because, you know, there have been people that say, well, it's just a, it's just a Southern California prototype. And that, that really isn't the case. No, well, I, um, on that note, uh, when I worked for CSX, I worked in, uh, in between Boston and Albany, and I've also rail fanned in the Albany area and, um, I've seen um, CSX didn't use them, but uh, CP Rail did. So I, I, on more than one occasion, have seen these tank train cars in um, the CP yard at uh, in downtown Albany. So absolutely right. They they use them at least the central, the Canadian Pacific uses them in the East Coast. So if nothing else, I have seen them. I have. I can testify. Um, I noticed. Uh... They were tried out also also in Alaska too. I, I was just doing some random research last night, and they show up on like a Alaska Railroad Railfans website, and it, it was pretty interesting to you know they're going from Anchorage to Fairbanks or something too. So these cars are pretty much national, like you were saying. Yeah, I, and I think it's something something to highlight is the fact that. Tank train is a concept and not necessarily a particular car. You know, in our research, we found that there are numerous shapes and sizes of quote-unquote tank train cars. Uh, you know, according to GATX, it's really a, it is a concept. The idea of loading and unloading a group of cars from one end is a concept that can be applied to different shapes and sizes and, and different commodities as well. And so it is something that you are going to see in various locations. Um, again, some of the prototypes that you see may not be this exact car, uh, but there are other types out there. Um, but again, this particular car style is one that we're aware of that has that these, in fact, these particular car classes have been have traveled other parts of the country. And so while they were out, obviously being used between Bakersfield and Carson uh, on the SP oil cans through the through Tehachapi. Uh, these particular car classes have been used elsewhere in the country. And, again, the tank train concept has been used on other sizes and shapes of cars in other parts of the country as well. So, initially, are, are you guys just going to offer this in HO scale, or are you considering possibly doing N scale, too? It's something we've certainly discussed. Uh, it would definitely be a great train for N scale because of the unit train nature. Uh, at this point, though, we haven't made a firm decision either way. Okay. 
Um, could you give us a little background on the SDP 45 project, kind of backtracking a little bit? Um, has this been a, a product that's been in development for a long period of time, or has it just kind of more recently come up in the scopes of Afrin? Um Actually, the SDP 45 is one of those projects that um, has been on the list for quite a while. It's one that we probably one of the most requested over the years, and recently even more so requested locomotives for us to do. And quite frankly, it's been one of those kinds of projects. As we go through our development processes and the evaluation of products, we look at different products and say, oh, "Well, what makes the most sense?" And you know, obviously, there's a lot of things that factor into that: market demand, what are other manufacturers doing. Um, and so, as we go through our process of, of looking at, you know. Try to, trying to develop a, a, a strategy for development. Um, this is one of those things that's been on the list for a while, and as it, as it would move up the list and we get closer to being something we won't want to work on, there would always seem like there would be something that would take precedent. You know, things that were more timely, things that needed to happen very specifically. Things like uh, Norfolk Southern SD78 heritage units. You know, obviously a very timely product that needs, you know, we needed to deliver those while while that was a bit while that's a hot topic in the in the both the rail fan and the model railroading community, um, and so the SDP 45 kind of fell victim to that a couple of times, uh, and we finally were able to get the stars to align to actually bring it to fruition, and we're we're very excited about it. You know, we've got a couple of the guys in the building here, SP modelers as well, and so we're you know we're we're as excited as anybody to bring this model to fruition. To kind of step back in time, this is a this has a project. This is a project that's probably been in development now for about three years. Mike and, and one of our other product developers, Paul, uh, actually went out to the Virginia Museum of Transportation, and we have to give them a big thank you uh, for allowing uh, us to be able to crawl all over that locomotive and take field measurements, thousands, probably into the thousands of photographs, and uh, probably need to thank Norfolk Southern as well. The locomotive's stored in the Roanoke yard there, and you know that was. That was about what, like three years ago? Yeah, about roughly. And, so. You know, so that's when the field measurements happened, and then from there, of course, it goes to the actual uh, write-up that we supply to our engineers to start uh, creating the uh, drawings, and then from there it goes, of course, to uh, uh, tooling. So it, it, it's quite a long process um, from the time we uh, decide to push the button, and then what also lengthens the time is over the past couple of years we've made the made a, a real effort to have a painted and decorated model at the time of announcement. So that stretches out that timeline as well. Right. Now, you, you've got your measurements off a real SDP 45? Yeah. I didn't even realize there were any left. Yeah, one of, the la one of the last ones is at the museum there in Roanoke, and we contacted them, and they were more than gracious. And again, along with, like Shane said, along with the help of the Norfolk Southern, because the railroad, the locomotive is actually stored on on railroad property, and they were they uh, you know rolled out the red carpet for us down there as well, and invited us to come down. And so uh, myself and Paul Ellis, uh, we went down there, and, and as Shane said, spent uh, spent an entire day uh, tape measures and and pencils in hand, uh, taking all kinds of measurements, photographs, and such. And so that was a a huge help, uh, along with you know lots of supplemental information from other sources as well. But, uh, yeah, that is one of the last ones still in existence. Well, what's the lineage of that locomotive? Do you know? It's actually in, it's, it, it's painted the Conrail. 
and it's an XEL unit. Okay. I guess pretty much the Great Northern and SP ones are gone. and the uh, Yeah, most of those are gone. There are still, my understanding is that some of the rebuilt uh, ones that the SP bought back in the, what would be the 90s, I guess, the Morrison-Knudsen rebuilds, there are some of those still kicking around on the UP, I believe in storage, though, at the moment. Uh, and those are the ones that were modified to have a 16-cylinder prime mover put in them as opposed to the 20. Uh, so there's some door arrangement changes on that, on those versions. But I think this this one may be the last, call it virgin, for lack of a better description, uh, original SDP-45. Those are the SD40M-2s, right, I think? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the ones that are on the, the XSP now on the UP, yes. Yeah, those are the ones that – part of that group of locomotives that, more, that MK rebuilt for uh, for the SP out of uh, SD45s. And then there was – I think there were there might have been as many as four, maybe five SDP45 bodies that they didn't modify the body and just left it uh, as, as it was. Now, do you have uh, – I know this may be – not something you're going to say, but uh, in f- subsequent runs, you're thinking about possibly doing some of those? or Although we normally won't comment on a future project, it wouldn't be a surprise. Okay. Sorry, didn't mean to put, you know, didn't, you know. No, that's it. okay. <laughs> I, I can either confirm or deny that rumor. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Um, I, I'm just curious because the, the SD... 45T-2, that was announced back in 2004. I was really excited about that one, too, as you can imagine why. Um, The difference between that model and this one is that was a ready-to-run release, and this one's going to be a Genesis release. Is there any particular reason uh, why, why you went with Genesis on this model? It's one of those things where we're trying to um, well, I'm trying to find the right word, distinguish between the ready to roll line and the Genesis line. And the locomotive you referred to kind of muddied that water a little bit. And with the market changes today and the demand for road name and road number specific detail that's as close to the prototype as you can get, probably in many instances good, if not better than brass, uh, that market shift was definitely caused us to be in Genesis. and. Honestly, the shell on the 45 T-2 is as good as a Genesis model. It just is on a RTR mechanism. Uh, so at some point, uh, to help kind of uh, clear up that water, that's probably a, a bridge we'll have to cross to bring that model up to a Genesis standard as well. So there's a, every bit of potential that um, some of the older RTRs will be reintroduced as Genesis with the improved mechanism and prototype detail or detail to prototype I should say and it it is within range of you guys considering doing something like that for like the 45 tunnel motor and some of the others there there are there are some models like Shane said that are kind of in this muddy water area and those are going to be ones that we would consider doing it would certainly would not be a lot of them Um, some of the you know some of the things that differentiate Genesis from RTR as far as the tooling goes one of the big things is walkway tread detail, and obviously that's unachievable realistically in a single-piece body tooling. 
such as an SD4-2, some of the older uh, rail power locomotives that we've upgraded because of the nature of tooling construction and the way those models were built. There is no realistic way to tool in that walkway detail. The 45 tunnel motor uh, does have it because of the nature of its design, uh, the body shell design, and so that would be one that would be considered for that uh, uh, to, to be able to help clear up some of that uh, that muddy water that we keep talking about. That being said, it's certainly not on the short list. There's there's plenty of other projects that we have on our plate right now. Like maybe a 40-2? GP 40-2? Uh, we actually uh, we announced the GP 40-2 back in April. So we've got in that particular G model... We're, the Genesis in, in? Yeah, a Genesis oh, okay. GP 40 in both an L version, a W version, and a straight GP 40-2. Oh, okay. Sorry, I, so I'm in N scale and P48, so I haven't necessarily kept up on these things. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Now, if you could do it in in, in N scale, that'd be great. But you There's probably already a good model. Right. There's already a good model out there. As soon as I said it, I thought. How long have you guys been working on the tank train project? Out of curiosity. Um, that's something that's been in development over the last uh, probably a couple of years. You know, the rolling stock doesn't obviously because of the complexity doesn't take nearly as long as a locomotive, and we can we can bring that to fruition a little bit faster. Um, but that again, that is that's another one of those models that's been on the list for quite a while. It was just kind of a matter of uh, of uh, it rising to the top of the list. But in actual development and and you know where, where things are really actually happening, you know, last couple of years or so, and that one came to fruition off of drawings as well as taking actual field measurements uh, of the of the prototype. So you guys came out to Santa Barbara and hung out and <laughs> waited for the Coast Camp to come by? No, actually we were able to get uh, make an arrangement with GATX and actually get into the, their uh, service facility in Colton, California. Oh, and, wow. Uh, they they, uh, they, were, they uh, gave us, uh, once again, rolled out the red carpet for us and uh, gave us carte blanche. We actually had a... Uh, uh, gentleman uh, that works for us that helped us uh, make that uh, make those arrangements, and we were able to actually get out there and do uh, a bunch of field measurements, and uh, that coupled with information from them to uh, to help facilitate that. that. That's fantastic. You know, well, when the SDP 45 was announced in Atlanta, it, it kind of took me by surprise. So I was like, oh, there's got to be a different locomotive coming out. I mean, I, I sort of figured that if there was an SP announcement, it, it happened closer to Portland. Um, was there any sort of reason for just getting it out at this, around this time or um, just the, it, it was in the product queue and ready to go and the announcement just kind of coincided with the Atlanta Convention, how did that work out? As much as we would like to coincide the an announcement with the region that where the announcement's being made, it's a pretty challenging task to do. Currently, we have probably 15 to 20-ish projects into the development cycle somewhere that haven't been announced yet. And with all of those projects, some things will come or will be completed much faster than expected, and then you'll have other projects that will linger uh, much longer. But we actually, we're working on a, we have about a three-year product plan for new announcements, and within that product plan, we'll try to match up to the region, 
but it's more a uh, an issue of when that product is uh, completed with tooling, completed with deco samples. Uh, we try to derive that, but it, it's pretty hard to uh, land on a specific show. But you know, we, like for instance, we have the national train show penciled in for the next two years. Things can change, and we have to change what that release is. I now, see. Um, now, Paul is in, taking it uh, on a in a different uh, tack. Now, are you going to continue on with this, Chris? Before I ask Paul's question, or because he's he's got a lot of noise going on in the background, that's why he punched it in on the chat. So, <laughs> no, no, go right ahead. Go ahead. Um, you guys have t- taken a kind of people think about you for uh, locomotives and the great work you do there. Did a couple of things that were somewhat different. You had the the reefers with the sound, and the Esky S, the Southern Pacific caboose with lights. Now, do you have plans um, specifically? We'll start with the caboose. Do you have any more plans for possibly that you can't comment on, even though I'm asking more projects like that, or cabooses in particular, or blah, 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 that you that you can't comment on. Well, we, we considered the SP caboose with light package uh, a pretty risky project. Um, it broke new price point barriers, even though it had new features. So uh, we didn't put anything else in development until we really saw how that project sold. It's done better than we anticipated, so wouldn't be surprised to see some other road-specific cabooses come at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how yeah, the reefers kind of like a side question to the caboose and then the sound reefer. Um, both of those products had wipers or, or contacts on the trucks. It, would Athern ever consider possibly releasing that as like a an add-on product for people that want to that need contacts for you know resistance detection or an ETD or something to put on the uh, Athern car? Uh, both of those sets are actually available as separate sale items or in stock now. Oh, so they're already available? Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So, Jim, was there a second part to the question? I kind of butted in there. No, that's okay. Uh, how how has the response been to the reefers? The, the reefers have actually really, uh, you know, the initial early on pre-orders weren't as, as strong as we'd hoped. But uh, once folks saw them, saw and actually heard the bottle, sales increased very well, and mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're pretty much sold out on the sound versions at this point from the first run, and Great. stock is dwindling on the non-sound. So uh, we had to spend making another uh, round of announcements with new uh, road names, paint schemes this fall. Awesome. Yeah, when I saw them, you know, you look at the list, and some people are like, yeah, you know, what you know, what are people going to come up with next? And and it's a great I, having been a prototype railroader, and you know, you stand on the ground, you hear him go by, you walk through the yard, you hear him kick on and kick off every once in a while. Um, I thought it was a great idea, actually. And, you know, it's uh, it, there's there's so many things um, that can be added. Uh, that's you know, the technology is becoming available. And the trick right. is, the trick is with you guys is, are do, do people want to pay for it? <laughs> just because, just because you can build it, just because you can build it, doesn't mean anybody wants to pay for it. And I'm glad to see that the response has been good once people understood that, hey, this is a good thing to have. And I think that was the key is we had to really show people what it was, what the product was before 
the market was comfortable with, with you know, committing to making the purchase. Well, let me jump in here. My uh, contractor's uh, quieting down for a while. And along this line, a couple of years ago, you did some incredible SP prototype chair cars in the Genesis line with with lights, very nice interiors. And is that something that might see, you know, that product line might be expanded in the future? When uh, when we announced the chair car, this is also one of the reasons now that we like to have samples when we make the announcement, we severely underestimated what that project was going to cost as well as the amount of time involved to create it. And realized in the process, you know, there's some other folks that are making some really good passenger cars. And for the amounts of effort and money that go into it, uh, we're better off uh, with focusing on locomotives. And then, of course, freight cars are a little less expensive to develop. But uh, not to say that we wouldn't do more passenger cars, but uh, right now with the economy and, and, you know, there's limited time, limited budgets, Focusing on our energies on on the more of the low hanging fruit and the things we know that'll turn the the sales for us. Okay, well that that makes sense. Uh, I didn't realize the cars were lit when I bought them, and didn't, and certainly didn't realize you guys had put capacitors in them. So I walked, you know, from the layout back in the uh, into the office here, and I'm carrying one in my hand, and I look down because it's it's dark and my hand's glowing, and I'm going. Holy crap! What's wrong with my hand? And then yeah, I went, "Oh, this, the car lights were still on." So I didn't realize there were capacitors in there. I thought, "Why is my hand glowing in the dark?" Yeah, that, that's something that we've really struggled with is telling our story. And we've been working a lot more in the last year, year and a half, to boost our web content, do more with video, do a lot more on social, um, so that we're telling more of what Athern does that really sets us apart. Because, you know, we believe that we're, when it comes to the detail side of the house and some of these new innovative features that, that we're really leading the way uh, for in those areas. And, and we've got to do a better job of explaining, you know, when you buy a locomotive and it's a, um, you know, like the Chessie GP9s, what makes each of those unique from each other and why would a, uh, a Chessie modeler want to own all four road numbers? Well, kind of going back to the refrigerator car sound, now, the the actual sound unit itself, did you work with another company developing the, the reefer sound on that? Uh, yes, Soundtracks did that for us. Now, it's not a DCC decoder. It's just a, basically a potentiometer with a soundboard and a speaker. Okay. Has there been a consideration on on their part on releasing that as a separate item for people that want to put, you know, sound decoders in, say, like a ready-to-run refrigerator car? Uh, haven't, we haven't had that conversation with Soundtracks. It's really in their court, but uh, have not okay. heard anything about them doing that separately. Okay. Going back to uh, the, the tank train for a minute. So you guys were taking exact measurements off the GATX cars themselves over at the facility. Were there any major external changes over the years that you noticed from the 1980s car to the ones that are still running today? The, the, the major changes, uh, well, not, not, not necessarily, no. Basically, the cars are, are very similar to the way they were built originally. 
but the two car classes and the reason why we pick two car classes is there are again subtle differences between those two classes. Uh, tank saddles, the uh, a lot of the fixtures for the loading and unloading hose uh, and transfer system, those components are different. Uh, some of the uh, nitrogen purge system uh, components are different shapes and in different locations. So there are some detailed differences, but as far as the way the cars are configured, the best of our knowledge, there's not even been any dramatic changes in the car design since their original, since these cars were particularly built. Again, keeping in mind that these are a specific class of car of tank train, while there are other versions out there. And the other versions back east will have different capacity volumes and. Well, again, this particular set of cars has run in the east, uh, and, and and so again, these particular the cars that we modeled, the two classes that we modeled, are applicable for Tehachapi, are applicable for uh, the east. Um, there are, and I believe they are the same cars that are on the uh, what on the on the train that runs down the coast in California as well. But again, the there are others, types and shapes and sizes and capacities, tank train, tank cars out there. But again, our car is a very you know again two specific classes that are applicable for the oil cans and Tehachapi are applicable for uh, our cars that did run in the east previously. I think actually before they were wound up on the oil cans, they ran back east first, and then um, and again, like I said, I believe they are the same cars that are running down the coast now. So that that really transcends a, a pretty, like a few decades there, really. Um, Absolutely, 70s, yeah. Nineties up till currently. Yes. So the, so going just a question about the prototype. Now the the prototypes that are on the coast were the ones that came off to Tashby in the mid nineties, and is that right? That, that's our that's our understanding. Yes. Okay. Uh, I know it's a different, um, you know, Lionel does different things, obviously, than you do, but Lionel has cars that have, they're tank cars, but they have, shall we say, ambient sounds, such as wheel squeal and things like that. Have you ever thought about having cars that have that type of sound in it instead of specifically a the motor that's in the reefer, have something, have more ambient sounds that, or squealing wheels going around corners, it's things that we, you know, Breaks and things like that. Something that we've discussed, but nothing that uh, is in you the short term. On. Okay. Well, nothing in the short term future. Okay. Well, well I have thanks. a question. <laughs> um, out, out of your past products that you've released over the past few years, uh, do you do you find a, a there's different box cars, tank cars, uh, hopper cars? Is, is there one kind of car that sells better than than another? Are, are boxcar still the number one is pretty much what I'm asking. Not really. Uh, boxcars, I mean, there's such a, a wide variety of boxcars on the market from many different manufacturers. They sell okay, but it's certainly not. Uh, usually it's the unit train cars that are going to turn the most volume. Things like the Cole Porter or uh, the Trinity Hopper or... Um, you know, the LPG tanks, things of that nature, those are probably the more uh, more popular cars. The ethanol yeah, tank cars. Right, because you need seven well, of them. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that would make complete sense. Now, other, other products, because uh, I know one thing, uh, your SW1500, 
And he thought about, I don't know how well that sold, but I know there had been comments from some people uh, saying, well, they came out and they're sold out and are they going to make any more? Because the second run of them was extremely good. I mean, I guess the first run was okay and the second one was really good. Now, have you thought about possibly making that a Genesis model or is that like not going to happen? This is just not feasible. That particular model up, upgraded to Genesis. That's just not. There's no way we could do that with that particular model. Uh, but honestly, the red or old version, when we when we changed the cab and made some other subtle details, both the first, every run we've done since has has gotten has received great reviews. So there's probably no reason to do that model in Genesis. One of the big challenges we have is. Is, is there enough detail difference, performance difference between the RTR model and the Genesis to, to invest the large amount of money required to tool a new model? Right, and from what I've heard about the, the, the subsequent runs of the SW1500, it runs great. It's a, you know, it's a magnificent model, so it wouldn't necessarily make sense. I think the complaints may have come from either Conrail or Penn Central guys because it seems like they just all sold out and <laughs> well the, the thing to keep in mind you know there, there's this perception that because a model sells out that it sold really well i can't comment on the yep. specific i don't have the numbers in front of me right um but we use pre-orders to judge what the market interest is and mm -hmm. we also use our historical records on past products to determine future sales mm -hmm. and if a model uh doesn't meet the expectations of, uh, initially of the sales we anticipated, we will trim back what we thought our orders were going to be for that model. Uh, in other words, we might order to the nearest case. On I'll give you a great example. On Cal Northern G15s, we only ordered maybe a case or two of each one for additional stock after the pre-order window closed just because there weren't very strong pre-orders. It's a small short line. Right. Um, if if pre-orders come in and they're really good, you'll see us order more stock for when the model comes in. It really, I mean, I would encourage your listeners, if, if there's a model you're interested in, pre-order with your retailer, and that helps us judge our demand and make sure that we have enough product in the marketplace. Right, right. I have a question for you guys. Uh, will, is there ever a consideration to offer maybe a way to pre-order directly through Athern? Just through like social media or something? Um, we actually, if you want to order direct from us, we have a, a website that's horizonhobbytrains.com. Mm -hmm. And that's the Horizon is the parent company for Athern, and all of our products are available there. Uh, so we could pre order through Horizon because a lot of us don't have a, a hobby shop even close by and three hours away. So that's why I asked that. You know, just having some sort of direct communication to let you guys know, hey, we're interested in this product that you're going to be releasing. You know, yeah, you can pre-order from us, and we also have a lot of retailers who have their own websites as well that do pre-orders, and of course, right. the local dealers do too. Right. Another question I have: uh, I, I I noticed that the the Genesis motor since like the SV70s has kind of changed. Uh, what motor are you using now for the the Genesis models? Uh, cur currently, um, we're actually using a motor that's built by our vendor in China. They, uh, they've 
built their own motor factory and are now actually manufacturing the motors for us. Previously, we've used uh, motors from Roco, uh, were the ones that we used previously. Uh, but again, currently we are now using a, a, a Chinese design motor that uh, that's working out very well for us. So this is something that you can standardize on moving forward. Yeah, basically this is the same motor that's in, in almost every Genesis locomotive, other than like the MP15 where there's some space constraints. But this would be in all of the the four axle uh, road units, hood units. The F units, the six-axle locomotives, these are uh, everything is, is will be using this motor going forward. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you heard that. Um, and I think you kind of already addressed this, but I'll say I know that in 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 a lot of areas, you know, people are looking for undecorated models. Some people are not. There may not be enough of them. Uh, and how do you um, determine? Is that that's entirely based upon pre-orders? Of, you know, if if I want if a bunch of people want undecorated models, they better pre-order them because I'm guessing that's not something you're going to stock very many of. That's correct. The challenge with undecorated, I mean, there are certain body types that sell well as an undecorated, um, but overall, the challenge is take the SD78s. I think we have four or five different, and then add the SD70M-2. I think there's, there's at least. Five different variants of that body. When you take the GP7 and 9, it, it, it's an infinite number of variations when you consider the details between railroads. So the challenge for us is we're not going to be able to offer road specific undecorated models. So, like for instance, with the G38 2 on the second run, we, we offered almost like a factory as delivered version, very similar to what the Missouri Pacific looked like, had both uh, versions of the dynamic brake hatch. But if you know if you want to do something road specific for CN with the with the white cab or uh, any of the other like the SP with the L window cab or any of those details, then you have to come to us and just buy those parts individually, or use an aftermarket manufacturer that makes cabs or detail parts. Um, excuse me, detail parts. Okay. All right. Now, have you seen at all a bigger uh, move for more? Requests for undecorated models, or has it been basically the same as it's always? That's a uh, weird question, maybe. But yeah, it's really hard to, to compare today to many years gone by because you know now today with the limited run nature of product, it allows us to do many different railroads, many different paint schemes, lots of detail variants. Uh, because and so there's much more variety in the market. Uh, it doesn't seem. I mean, our numbers show us that people really aren't doing a lot of undecorated models anymore. Um, so that's why, like on the second run, usually we'll offer an opportunity to buy undecorated on a new model, but then you know, it, it might be many years before that opportunity comes around again. Mm, okay. All right. It, well, you know, the I'm, undecorated market, too, is also satisfied by, you know, past kits that have already been produced, you know, like the blue box stuff. Um, <laughs> The only the only thing I would say is, for instance, uh, I troll, and I guess I'm guessing you guys do too. The diesel list, and admittedly, the diesel list is a small number of people in comparison to in comparison to the numbers of uh, people that you sell to. But you know, many times they're they, I mean, basically all these guys are are salivating over your GP38-2. 
I mean, they they may have their comments about a lot of other models, but at least the GP38-2, everybody agrees it's the finest model of a GP38-2 that's ever been done. And from what I've seen of it, uh, I agree with them. And so, you know, they look at a lot of their other models and say, man, I wish I could get more GP38. Genesis GP38-2s because there's so much less work I have to do. And I guess, you know, perhaps your comment to them would be pre-order more undecorated than you might get them. Well, they're in stock right now, so if somebody oh, okay. wants undecorated GP38-2s, I would order while they last. Right. Okay. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that parts are typically readily available directly from us out here in California. Mm-hmm. And so for the guy that wants to kit bash or build his own, um, there's nothing precluding him from buying a decorated model and swapping parts, selling the body, doing whatever he wants. But the parts are, you know, most parts are readily available. And if, if we don't have them in stock here, we can get them typically in a few weeks from the factory, again, depending on uh, on production schedules and such. But, uh, you know, but parts are readily available. I think there's a misconception that they aren't, and that's, that's just not the case. Okay. Uh, and so, part, you know, parts are available for those that, for the model builders that are out there that are that are still doing that. And so, if you know, if you need something um, and an undex not available, certainly you can buy parts. Um, but like Shane said, the undecorated the undecorated becomes a real challenge when you look at the variations in a given locomotive as a GP38-2. There are there's a myriad of variations, and so the question then becomes. What do we do? Which version do we do? Because we're never going to do the right one for everybody. And when you start, you start when you start narrowing down what that undecorated is going to be, you start you really start cutting it pretty thin as to what group of undecorated modelers are going to be interested in buying that model. And so right. you know, we try to give we try to supply a model that is a that is a starting point for the guy that wants to build his own. And you know, as Shane said we gave it we gave one particular version. And then from there, you know, it's the building blocks of whatever version you want just by contacting our parts our parts people and ordering the balance of the parts that you need to, to build the configuration that you want. Okay. Does that still work with etch parts, too? Yep, absolutely. The etch parts, the plastic parts, the wire form parts, the brass parts, almost everything is, is relatively readily available within reason. And, again, it's an issue of supply and demand, but we do have, you know, those parts are available. If there's a, if there's a brass part you're looking for, if you want one of, the, one of these really nice horns that we make, you can buy Those can be purchased from us. The etchings, you know, basically anything that's listed in the instruction booklet, when you open it up, is going to be, is going to be you, you can purchase it. You may not be able to purchase an individual item. If it's part of a set, you'll have to purchase the set, but, the, but those parts are going to be relatively readily available. You're going to need to contact partsatathern.com is the email address, or you can call us out here in California. You're going to need to deal directly with us. We have our own little small, you know, warehouse area out here. There's just there's far too many parts for Horizon as a large hobby distributor to be able to stock everything. So they 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 do stock some parts, but the vast majority of them are going to be available directly from Athern. Okay, I think that's a good deal. Great. We'll we'll just wrap this up. I just want to thank you guys for coming out and taking a few moments to discuss uh, Atherin products with us. And uh, I'm sure our our readers and our listeners will will be um, 
really interested in some of these uh, questions and comments uh, that were traded back and forth, especially about the parts. I, I mean, yeah. I have I have parts that I need to get right now. I'm telling you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Appreciate your time, guys. All righty. Well, thank Very you much. guys for for giving us an opportunity to uh, speak with your listeners, and hopefully, we can do this again. <laughs> Hello, this is actor Michael Gross, and you're listening to the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. All right. Uh, well, on the uh, the line with uh, Chris and Jim and I right now is Jason Schron of Rapido Trains. Jason, thank you for uh, taking your time. Oh, thanks for having me. Not a problem. Hey, uh, big surprising announcement, uh, Bendy Track. You've got this uh, kind of startling announcement, you know, for years doing nothing but very high quality uh, rolling stock passengers, caboose, and so forth. Now, jumping into the flex track market with a product called Bendy Track. Yes, yes, yes. And I've just got to say at the outset that uh, the store where I am, we have not seen Atlas uh, Code 83 flex track for 14 months. And within three weeks of your announcement in all the media, all of a sudden, we get a shipment of uh, flex track. I wonder what brought that about. <laughs> well, that would be a coincidence because you know they, their flex track would have been en route from China when we made the announcement. Um, but uh, Bendy Track was really it, it was more of a, um, of a of a happy coincidence. I had planned to do track back in 2009. We started working on track designs, um, and then the economy really fell apart, as we all know. And I thought at that time, it's not a good time to be introducing uh, a new competing track product at that point, though we'd done all the design work for it. Um, and uh, so we sort of put on the back burner. And then my factory in China came to me and said, hey, you know, we've sort of been thinking about that track, and we've actually made up the track uh, along the lines of what we had designed back in 2009. And we, we made it so that we, you know, we could sell it in China. Um, do you want to sell it in North America? And I said, sure. <laughs> Why not? You know, we'd want it to do track. I think that there's always um, uh, enough of a market there for another track brand. We have no desire to be the biggest supplier of track, um, but the track that we've uh, that we've got from China, it's good looking stuff, and it bends really nicely. Um, and there's always room on the market to have someone else uh, bring and track us. So you go to the hobby shop and you have a bigger choice. It's not like, you know, a GMD-1 where we're the only ones making it or an FP-9 where it's the detail level compared to the, the competitors is, you know, far in excess. Uh, but it's just it's just another option there. Sorry about that. I am in an office, so we have old phones here that make a lot of noise. That's okay. No problem. It's just part of the ambiance of spontaneity. I yeah, one of these phones is from about 1935. It's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> just it, a, it was my yeah. birthday, and I, I begged my family to get me this phone, and they said no. So then I just went and bought it myself. <laughs> okay, that'll show them. <laughs> All right, so, and you're supplying... Uh, Rail joiners with each piece. Yeah, well, I, I think all of us have had the experience at some point in the past where we, uh, we're working on track and we run out of rail joiners and it's Sunday at 6 p.m. or some other time when the hobby shop is closed and you just, oh, I mean, like just, just yesterday I was working, uh, doing bench work on my, my layout 
and I ran out of three-quarter inch uh, number eight pan head screws, which is the bulk of what I use to attach my uh, the benchwork pieces together using uh, metal angles and those three-quarter inch screws. And yeah, Labor Day, nothing's open. So my work on my layout just kind of stopped. <laughs> and I don't want that ever to be the case. If you if you get uh, bendy track, each uh, piece of flex track comes with four rail joiners, but you really usually only need two. So the idea being that well, you know if you if you bought a you know, few dozen pieces, you're gonna have a lot of extra rail joiners kicking around. Okay. Yeah, and uh, this the, the we're doing code eighty three and code one hundred to start. Uh, we've also got another track supplier in China um, that we're in the design stage now for a super detailed. Flex track, so it's even more detailed than the one we're doing now, uh, which we would want to do in code 70 and 83. So that would be in addition to the bendy track. It's sort of another line of bendy tracks. So you can expect that announcement sometime in the next few months. Okay. Now, will that be a, a a springy type track like that, or will it be more of the bended and it'll hold its shape like microengineering? I'm a fan of springy track that's not so springy that you know. It drives you nuts. So, for example, our bendy track, it, it is springy, but I personally put down my track using uh, latex caulk. Um, and, and the latex caulk has got enough grip that it'll hold it while you're, while you're laying it down. You know, if it's got too much spring, then it's just going to sort of be really annoying. Uh, but I find personally the, the ones that, that really hold your, um, your curve, it's so hard to get a smooth curve. I know a lot of people are able to do it really well. Uh, you see the, the great layout photos out there. But personally, I'm a bit of a klutz. And, uh, and I find that when, I, when the, the track holds the curve really tight, um, I end up getting all sorts of kinks. When I'm laying the track, you know, I like I want the track to do some of that the work for me to become smooth, make create a smooth curve, and that's why I was really happy when I got the bendy track samples from China. Is that it really curves nicely? Really happy with how it how it curves. Okay, very good. Yeah. Now, besides uh, what is it? Three feet, thirty nine inches. It's three feet. It's, it's okay. Then what are you coming out? Uh, with it, the the original info piece that I read indicated that it might be a little bit downstream before we had a full range of crossings and turnouts, but what's going to accompany the track on the initial release? Well, to start, we're just doing CO-183. You know, people are asking, why are you doing CO-100? Well, there are actually still a lot of people who like to use it, especially if yeah. they've got an older layout they built, say, 25 years ago, all CO-100, and they want to build a new section. They want it to sort of match the, uh, the first section they've done. Uh, we're yeah. just doing the, the flex track for now. And then if people like it, then we're going to invest in, in a line of switches and, and, and more track. You know, so I really, I mean, there, I'm, I'm a big fan of my competitors when it comes to track. I've got Peiko. I've got Walter Shinohara. Um, you know, I, so I've, I've got lots of other track on my own that I'm using for my own layout. Um, so again, I wouldn't be going out to replace the other makers that are out there, uh, the Atlas, the microengineering, et cetera. It's just another option. And a lot of people have asked us, for example, to do some larger switches with um, more accurate track geometry. So we're going to look yeah. into the possibility of doing that. You know, often though, when you find that no one else has done something, there's usually a good reason. So we're probably going to start working on that and find out, hey, that's why no one else has done accurate geometry because you can't. You know, so that, that yeah. could happen. I mean, when we, I'll tell you, we um, when we really announced our F9B, I uh, I wanted to do dummies because you know, I remember. 
having B unit dummies on my layout as uh, when I was younger. Um, and I thought, let's bring out some dummies. Then I realized that the dummies cost $6 less than the powered locomotives. Okay, from my perspective, it's the cost yeah. of the motor. The assembly cost, the decorating cost is all the same. The only difference is the cost of the motor. Okay, so... I said, you know, let's bring out dummies and we'll, we'll, we'll sort of, we'll, we'll finance the dummies with the sales of our powered units. So we, you know, we won't make any money on the dummies. Actually, you know, we might even lose a bit on each one, but you know what? People want dummies. So what happens? We announce them and immediately everyone orders dummies. So I call up Bill and I said, Bill, everyone's ordering dummies. We're not going to make any money on this project. So it's like, okay, no announcement whatsoever. We're raising the price of the dummies by 40 bucks. Right, so it still hardly makes any money, you know. And I and then it occurred to me then, this is why the established guys have stopped making dummies, right? Because it doesn't make yeah. any money, you know. So we may discover with the track when we say, hey, let's do this brand new thing. Oh, right, that's why no one else has done it. Okay, because you know, it, it, it comes down to it, we're a bunch of model railroaders who started the model train company, as opposed to being a long established model train company. Yeah, so uh, so we're always trying new things, and there are times when uh, when they're you know amazingly successful. Our easy peasy lighting's been really successful. Um, the totally wired telephone poles was another crazy innovation that people loved. And there are other times when we say, "Wow, that was a complete flop. We can't do that." <laughs> okay. Now, Jason, I'm going to ask you a weird question. Yeah. Now you know you know that um, like Atlas track, Atlas Plus track got those. Um, the tack holes in the middle of the ties. Yeah. And Shinohara's got them every once in a while in the ties where the spikes would go. Right. Uh, are you going to be putting in uh, spike holes in the track someplace? Our track, our track has half holes underneath the ties about every three, four inches. So, um, okay, yeah, so it doesn't go the all the way through because so many people are using latex caulk now, so it doesn't make sense to have these big unsightly holes in the middle of your track. Uh, but they are there, so you can either, if you're good, you can pop through from the from the top, or you can just take a you know a drill and just go right, you know, uh, turn it over and and pop out the holes first. It's, it adds an extra couple of minutes if you're using spikes. Is, is it in the middle of the tie or like the, this holes are in the, the middle rail. of the tie? They're in the middle of the tie, uh-huh. and they go in. The ties are you know what about uh, two millimeters tall? So so the the yeah. hole is about a millimeter deep, right? So it okay. goes it goes about halfway through. So, okay. uh, so those of you who want, like myself, I use a latex cog. I've actually, um, here's, here's, here's a, a sneak peek of a new product. Um, I'm actually working right now with a, a supplier in China to do uh, a, a, a foam roadbed that's phenomenally flexible but is incredible at killing noise, okay, better than anything else on the market. And I find that the combination of using this roadbed, uh, this material that I've discovered when I was in China, and using latex cock really helps to kill the, the rail noise, you know, because um, when you have the uh, the rail noise on, you know, with all the sound-equipped locomotives we have these days, you want to be able to hear them, um, and you don't want to be blasting them. So I'll tell you, I'm modeling Spadina Yard in 1980. There's a locomotive shop there that any time could have 40 locomotives idling. You know, the thought of having those all up at full volume, you know, after three minutes you leave the room and never come back. So killing noise is really important. I think latex caulk is a great method because it – it keeps its its tackiness. It keeps its flexibility. I'm a big fan of latex caulk. And even using the this new foam roadbed that that we're, I'm developing, which is actually cut to actual uh, Canadian national roadbed profiles. Um, and the other thing we're doing is even foam roadbed for double track. So you've got uh, you know it, it it doesn't come down all the way on one side. It just comes down a little bit. 
right? So you put two together to get two tracks at two-inch centers. And uh, so yeah, I even put that on top of more foam. I put a foam sub-row bed with a foam row bed on that, latex caught, and my track. And then when I balance it, it's still got some bounce to it, which means that it doesn't act as an echo board. You know, my last uh, modules that I did were all in two-inch foam insulation, and I did cork on top of that. And all I created was a phenomenal echo board. You know, the, right. the, radio, the wheel sound was so loud that I would have to turn my locomotive sounds up to max in order to hear them really clearly. And it drove me nuts. So I'm experimenting with this. I'm actually going to be updating my, the, my personal website, which is kingstonsub.com, hopefully sometime in the next month. Um, I've developed a new benchwork method and, uh, and, and I've, you know, seeing how, how it works that basically uses a fraction of the amount of wood as uh, traditional methods and, and only uses plywood because I'm not a fan of using dimensional lumber because it works. Uh, so, you know, I'm really experimenting. So I'm building my own layout. I've been playing this layout since I was five. So, uh, so this is my opportunity to experiment. And also it's, it's all the model railroaders get to benefit from this because whenever I need something for my layout, I generally manufacture it. <laughs> so. You know, why why you got all these great Canadian models? Well, you know, modeling Canada, that's why. Uh, why hey, why you get bring out track? Well, you know, I need a rather a lot of it. Hey Jason, Chris Omar is here. I have a question, kind of backpedaling to the ties that you were yeah. talking about for Bendy Track. Well, what material are you using? Are you using a styrene or a slippery plastic for it or it's as far as I know, it's ABS. So okay. it's not it's not the, the slippery stuff. Because the slippery stuff is really hard to paint. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's ABS. I have, I've had no trouble painting the samples that I've got in from China. Um, so, and, and the paint sticks. You know, I, another thing. That's you, phenomenal. Yeah, you look at layout features, and and you see like gorgeous modeling, right? Gorgeous scenery, scratch built structures, gorgeous. And then you've got this really bright, shiny track on a really bright, shiny ballast. And uh, for me, track laying is you lay the track. Then you get out your airbrush, and you need, you need to invest in an airbrush with this, and you spray the track like a muddy, yucky color. Um, then you do your ballast, and then you spray it again, right? Because if you go on the main line, unless the main line only sees one train a week, you're going to see the crud color extends right from below the railhead onto your ties and onto your ballast, right? And then what I do is I, I drag, I take a, a very fine brush, with a little bit of rust color, and I drag it along the, the spike heads on both sides right. of each rail. And I learned to do this by basically riding via and photographing my track from on board the train, right? So I would stick my, you know, open the back door and take some pictures as I'm going over it, or I'd go to the train station, one of the Go Transit stations in suburban Toronto, and I'd photograph the track, right? And, and so many people, a gorgeous layout, you, like the, the big clue that this is a model is because it's got really bright, shiny track. People forget that track is a model. You got to paint it. You know, so I'm, 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 a, I'm a big proponent of that. In fact, the, the ballast I used uh, when I uh, tested my sample of, of Bendy track was the wrong color. I just painted the whole ballast. I just took out a brush to get the color I wanted. I just painted the whole thing. It's a model, just like anything else. On your uh, the foam uh, roadbed you're going to be coming out with, yeah. is it? Uh, and I'm just talking relative densities here. Is it? As soft as woodland scenics, or is it somewhere between woodland foam and cork? It's a totally different material than woodland scenics, first of all. Okay. Um, it's uh, it's much closer to neoprene, and uh, and it flexes really nice without bunching up, right? But it's got a much more it's more more of a, a denser cell than woodland scenics. Yeah. So I I, I enjoy woodland. I've used woodland scenics. I enjoy the woodland scenic stuff. 
Uh, my only complaint with the Phoenix is that it's got the, um, and you have this often with cork as well, unless you file it down, is it's got those sharp angles on the side of your row bed. When row beds should really have gradual angles. Right, so uh, that, that's something we're obviously we're going to make sure we have in this thing is very gradual angle. And we'll see. We'll see how the road bed does. We'll see how the track does. And we'll just keep churning out more stuff provided that people like what we do. If, uh, you know, we, we've got quite a, a very solid initial order from our stores for the track, and we'll deliver it. And we'll, they'll either say, well, this was good but not good enough, so we're not buying it anymore. Or they'll keep buying it. If they keep buying it, then uh, then we'll definitely expand the line. You know, you did those great caboose cars a couple years ago, yeah. and they still fetch high dollars on eBay or if you can find a dealer who has them. Now you're bringing out a Canadian prototype. What a light, is that a 65-foot, like a Milgon? No, that you're bringing that's out? a 52-foot six. It's transition era built in the 40s and the 50s. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, this is a gun that has been used all over North America. I was talking with uh, on one of the forums with a modeler, he's an SP modeler. You know, I love your stuff, but I have no need for your gun, your your, your products, because I model SP. So I wrote back to him saying, "Well, I got about a dozen SP freight cars on my layout. You go buy a dozen of my guns and put them on your layout." You know? And he wrote back saying, "Good point. Yeah, I do see CNCP stuff around here. Yeah. So it's um, it's a very very common prototype." And uh, what I love about our model is that we are the first to do this. The real gun had Z-shaped braces on the side. It didn't have half-shaped braces, um, which is very, very hard to do in HO scale because you cannot inject that. You know, when the mold slide is moving away, you cannot undercut this part of the, the, the channel, the Z or Z channel, um, that uh, obviously, you know, you can see underneath it. So what we did is we actually have each one of those channels is a separate piece that's put onto the factory. So our ribs on our gun actually have rivets on the sides of the ribs. So this has never been attempted before in an HO scale gondola model. So we're really, really proud of that. It just looks awesome. And uh, and our floor of our gun is a piece of metal. So it's actually the floor detail is is cut into the metal, right? So and it's painted in the factory. So the thing's got good weight to it. Uh, and okay. and the ends do drop down, so our, our ends are not glued in. They just they just they rest in these slots. And if you want to drop it down, you lift it up and drop it down, and you can put your a long pipe load or something else in there. Uh, so it, it's it's a gorgeous little looking car. Now, I mean, I'm I'm a fan of underbody equipment. It's got all of it there, but you know, compared to the passenger cars with the, their generators and steam lines and all that, it looks so bare to me. But it is all there. You know, all the underbody equipment. We, we even have the bleed valve. There's a metal. We use a piece of metal that comes through from the underbody out to the exterior of the car and bends down. And that was a bleed valve for the air, the, uh, air brake equipment. You know, so it's, uh, I, I apply the usual crazy amount of detail to this. But, again, we're the first people to do those braces like that. And I'm really, really proud of that feature. It just makes the, the gone stand out as being different from everything else on your layout, even though, in reality, these things were ubiquitous. They were all over the place. But they were in service. We've got photos of these things in service in the United States into the 1990s. And uh, when I was on the, my, I did a tour of hobby shops out in Western Canada last month. Um, I was on the train going through Portage of the Prairie, Manitoba. And sure enough, like, you know, not 100 feet away from me was one of my guns still in service for Canadian Pacific, still in black, which is the delivery scheme. Um, so this car is 70 years old. Right, and it's still in service. And right beside it was one of our one of our CP cabooses at the end of a train that was actually being shoved with a bunch of guys standing on it. Yeah, so it's amazing that here we are in 2013, late 2013, and this 1970s prototype caboose, this 1940s prototype gone, still in service on the main line. 
very, very neat. The uh, the cabooses are still used uh, on local freights that have long backup moves. They were called rider cars. Uh, right. So this one had all the windows boarded up, and the guys just basically use it as a platform to stand on. The Gons went into maintenance away service in the 1990s, and they're still in maintenance away service. It's amazing to see these things still in service. Just fabulous. You're doing actual roller bearing trucks with spinning roller bearing caps and no, 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 no. They're not roller bearing caps. They are. Um, uh, the great thing about these Gons is they have these neat trucks on them on some of the paint schemes, and we'll be releasing the trucks separately. When I was doing research for the Gon with Bill, um, I noticed that a lot of the trucks had roller bearings, but they were roller bearings on the cheap. They were old trucks with the journal boxes with roller bearings shoved inside the journal boxes. So I said, what is that? And we did some research and discovered that that was very common in the 1960s and 70s and even the 80s to, instead of replacing the truck, you would stick the roller bearings inside the journal boxes. And so we've actually tooled that, and a lot of our, our uh, guns in the later schemes are going to come with those wacko trucks with the journal box covers off and the roller brings visible inside. And we'll be making that available separately because it's just a neat thing to have on, uh, on, on all sorts of freight equipment. It's, it just makes it different from yet another 70-ton truck. Yeah, and I, I recall seeing this uh, approach on cars into the middle 70s. Yeah. Well, I saw it in the middle 80s. I mean, it was everywhere. And They're still in service now. You can still see them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see them on water cars. You can see them everywhere. They're, they're still in service. Uh, it's a pretty common thing out here in California, maybe even in the western part. I'm not sure how it is on the eastern part. Yeah, it, it's a real common truck design, and it's really, really rare as a, as a model. Yeah, so, so we're going to be releasing those trucks separately. We'll have those trucks in stock before the end of the year. So uh, so we'll be announcing the product numbers and everything within the next few weeks. Cool. I'll have something to add to my Bendy track order. Excellent. How's your, uh, how's your time, Jim? Uh, well, let's see. Where are we? We're now on the northeast quarter, so I've got about five minutes. Why don't you go ahead and add, ask uh, Jason that your question about the uh, model that you covet that he has. Oh yes, uh, you. Uh, I, I saw that you you're coming out with a new line of locomotives. Well, we've got a whole bunch of locomotives. Yeah. Yeah, you have uh, uh, the the nice blue and yellow uh, GMD one, the special one. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, blue. Uh, sort of, wasn't it sort of pink and blue? It, uh, yeah, it was pink and blue. I'm pink sorry, and blue, it was pink yeah. and blue. The pink and blue pink GMD. And blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, very, uh, very classy, very classy, very unique. I'm very, I'm very it, it was finally molded by hand. I saw that and I broke out laughing. That's probably like a plasticine GMG one. I was like, I gotta have that. That's my favorite is the yeah. Lego one, by the way. <laughs> you like the Lego? Oh, yeah, there's, there's, there's the big Lego one, too. Yeah, I'm not really interested in the Lego one. And when I sent you the email about it, your comment was, well, I could send it to you, but I don't know how I could actually send it and have it arrive in one piece. It would probably melt in, melt in shipping. <laughs> okay, I'm missing. I understand the Lego. What are we talking about, this other one, Jim? Uh, is it going to melt? Well, it's made out of plasticine. It's plat Play-Doh. So uh, for what he did in um, one of the ads, well, one, one of the ads, it was in um, yeah. Model Railroad Hobbyist for the GND1, it said, you know, something about have you been struggling with, you know, your needs for a GND1, now you can get rid of these and get this. Yeah, I think it was well, something like Bob, 
Bob thinks it might be time to replace his scratch-built GMD-1 models. It was a picture of a plasticine GMD-1 and a Lego GMD-1. Yeah. Both built by yours truly. The Lego GMD-1 was built when my kids and I were building a Lego model railroad in the house, and I just, you know, started putting it together. And then when I finished, I said, hey, I should keep this. This could be handy in an advertisement one day. Yeah. And, and there is a um, one of the guys that I work with. He's not a modeler, but he's a CN Canadian national fan. He, he had asked me to go to the website because he wanted some Canadian national hats up because that internet service at his house. And I said, oh, I found something that you'll absolutely love. You've got to have this. And he saw it. And I said, oh, man, you've got to get me that. <laughs> D1 will go really well with my Lego uh, SD50F I have right here. Excellent. There you go. See, that's the new line of locomotives you should come out with, Jason. Yeah, oh, why not? Yeah. Hey, the Lego market's out. huge, man. Yeah. <laughs> Though I'm not sure that the market for it, because I actually built it out of Duplo. Which is, I think it, it was it was part Duplo, part Lego. Duplo is the big Lego for for little kids. Yeah, oh, I had fun with that. You know, you have to you have to have fun with these things. Too many yes. uh, model railroad manufacturers are just so serious. And they're, they're afraid, you know, like they do an advertisement design and they gotta send it to three committees before they can actually publish it. And I, I don't play that way, right? I mean, the design, the ads are done by me or Bill. And, uh, obviously when I do them, I don't send them for approval. <laughs> I just do them up and send them out. Uh, Bill sends it to me and I usually say, yeah, that's fine or throw this in or whatever. Um, and, uh, and we have fun with it. You know, it's, it's so important to have a sense of humor. Uh, I mean, this is a hobby. Uh, even though it's, it's obviously this is my career and, and this is how I got, you know, four or five people earn their living with working with Rapido. Um, it's, uh, it's still, it's a hobby. It's, it's what we do for fun. And if you can't have fun with it, what's the point? Okay. What is Prairie Shadows? Prairie Shadows is a good buddy of mine named Jeff Arnold. Uh, he lives in Winnipeg, Manitoba, right in the center of Canada. And he started Prairie Shadows primarily as a dealer a retailer uh, a few years ago, several years. He's been around for a while. And his main business is he's in the trucking industry. Uh, Jeff okay. Arnold is in Arnold Brothers Transportation. But he loves trains more than trucks, and he would love to be doing this full time. So he uh, he approached me about doing some projects together um, so that he would sell uh, things like – he's a big N-scale modeler. He's not into HOs uh, as much. So that's why we're doing some new N-scale stuff with him. We've got the uh, the same gone that we're doing H. Joe, we're doing N-Scale, the Canadian Gone. There's the CN Bulkhead Flat Car in N-Scale. The one that's coming out first is the CN Point St. Charles Caboose in N-Scale. Uh, you know, it's nice to have another Canadian manufacturer out there. You know, so he's uh, he's really quite keen on this. And there's actually, I can tell you right now, I can't tell you what they are, but I can tell you that he and I are working on several new projects together. So the N-Scale uh, market, I mean, there's the stuff that I'm doing myself uh, for N-Scale. But there's going to be a lot more N-Scale stuff coming up because you got someone like Jeff, who's a hardcore N-Scaler, and he's serious about it. So um, and, and I've got this new factory in China um, that I'm working with. And right now, all they're making is N-Scale stuff. So uh, they're making the stuff for, for Jeff. And uh, and so I'm hoping that there'll be quite a lot more N-Scale stuff on the market from Rapido, either through us directly or through Jeff in the coming month. Uh, but uh, people who saw our newsletter, uh, there is a I sort of snuck a, uh, an N-Scale locomotive into a recent newsletter that we are we are working on uh, with with no fanfare, nothing, <laughs> and we'll just see who read to the end of the newsletter. Let's find out. So we do get the, we're getting these occasional emails saying what who's that who's that, and uh, that's, it's fun to throw stuff in like that.
Okay. Well, that the photo of the caboose that's there on your webpage in Prairie Shadows, yeah. is that in-scale? Oh, yeah. The Prairie Shadows is an in-scale caboose. All the, okay, all but the photo, is that an in-scale prototype? I mean, it's insanely detailed if that's in-scale. Hey, i got to go to my, my website to see what, which photo you're looking at here. Oh, yeah, that's in-scale. Good grief. Yeah, yeah. The factory doesn't like the amount of detail I put on these models. They keep telling me, make stuff a bit simpler. Come on. Yeah, uh, this is a that the CSX caboose that that we've recently reissued. Uh, it's the CP caboose decorated for CSX safety first scheme. And that's a hugely popular caboose. But I mean, every time I send the artwork to the factory, they they, they go into conniptions because there's got to be you know, hundreds of printing positions on that thing. But it's it's, it's fun to do this stuff, right? Yeah, we try and get as detailed as we can. Yeah, those, those the three cabooses that are visible on uh, and all the the close up photos. That's all in scale. Golly, that's that is insane. Yeah, including the working marker lights. That's the I, I'm really proud of that feature. Yeah, that's some small LEDs. Yeah, we did that in HO as well. Now we've done it in uh, in end scale. It's neat to have that little bit of animation, you know. So you have the have the markers bring up the rear of the train. It's harder to do when you've got an older caboose with the markers that are separate bits. Yeah. But uh, it's it's not too hard to do for uh, these guys. And, you know, they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. We uh, brought out our easy peasy lighting, you know, a few years ago now. And uh, with with that, the wand, as you can see that on the N scale caboose page on our website, you see the wand there. And it's amazing how many manufacturers are now brought out some form of magnetic powered lighting with a wand. And the funny thing is, they must have sent our wand to their maker in China because they even copied the shape of the handle. Oh, of really? Our okay. <laughs> Yeah, imitation is a serious form of flattery. It doesn't bug me. The people still know easy peasy lighting, and that we get a lot of requests for our easy peasy lighting. All right, but uh, I'm telling you, if you're going to make a car, at least change the shape of the, the handle. Come on, don't make it so obvious. Okay. Oh yeah, you're you I've lusted after your cabooses uh, quite a while. Uh, yeah. You even have step lights there on the side, down on the truck, and I guess you've got LEDs in those. On the caboose, no, we haven't got the the working LED lights on the on the bottom of the caboose. Okay, all right. Uh, is it, it may there may be a, a wee bit of uh, of leak from inside, which would create your your accurate looking feel. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, actually, the, the LRC locomotive, um, all going well, will be delivered. This is the HO scale. It will be delivered with step lights. Uh, the factory showed me a step light design they'd done. They said, use that. So, uh, so once we finish up the tooling mods for the LSU locomotive, that, that should be coming out next year. I only, I only started work on that one eight years ago. That, uh, that one should be, uh, should have work. Well, working step lights across the board for locomotives, cabooses, and anything else, I would suspect that would be a, a product that could apply to other things too. Yeah, well, you know, it's fun. <clears throat> it's fun, but it's easy to do. Just people just, I'm sure I won't be the only one doing it. I'll bring it out then soon enough. Everyone's going to have working, working uh, step lights on their locomotives. You know? But uh, that, that tends to be what happens. Though I'll tell you, nobody yet has managed to copy our underbody detail. Um, if you compare our passenger cars with anything else on the market, there, it, it, I'm proud to say that there's no comparison. And I think the reason is they looked at probably how much it would cost to make the underbody detail, and they said, don't need it, right? But for me... Um, the underbody detail in a passenger car is so vitally important because without all that stuff, all those steam lines, the D22 air equipment, without the, the electrical lines, the battery boxes, the Jenna motors, all that stuff, what you essentially have is a boxcar with seats in it. 
right? And and just like if you buy a model of a Jaguar, it's going to have that Jaguar engine inside, even if you can't see it. I feel that way when I have uh, a passenger car model. That it should have all of the hardware necessary to to bring that to you that that comfort experience. Whether, whether down to things like um, anti anti macassars on the seats. I hope I pronounced that right. Or or I put I put sinks and faucets in the toilets, even though you can't see them, right? It's it's I'm trying to recreate these real things in model form, especially when it's something like the turbo. The turbo, they're all they were all scrapped. Uh, same thing with uh, with any of the old the old CN cars. All those CN cars were all were all screwed. Hardly any of those are still in service. Um, and the model is the only way you can experience that that. Thing now that piece of history now, so I really try and put everything on there, um, and I, I've spent so much time underneath passenger cars, and, and as I get older, it gets more and more difficult to scuttle around on my back on ballast underneath the passenger car. I'll tell you that. Yeah. So, uh, but I keep doing it. I keep doing it, and uh, we do have more passenger cars planned. So uh, we're, we're going to keep keep scuttling around on, uh, underneath train cars. Okay. Now on your Canadian Pacific passenger train, the one that was out, the Canadian, yeah. Yes. Oh, that came with the locomotives and everything. Yeah. Uh, I know we sold two sets just as quickly as we got them in the store. They were gone. Yeah. And the guys who bought them and took them to clubs, I mean, everybody raved on them. So excellent job. Now, you've got a second run of that train, what, under VIA, if I understand it right? No. So the way it works is we released um – the original CP scheme, the Action Red scheme, and the VIA schemes as part of the uh, you know original release of the Canadian. The Canadian was all done. We don't. We always take advance orders. We don't make any inventory. We got stuck when the economy fell apart with three thousand cars in our warehouse, and I said, "I'm never doing this again." So what we're doing now is we're releasing the cars separately. So you're going to see an announcement uh, at the end of this month for the dome cars from the Canadian, the, the park series cars at the end of the train in Canadian Pacific and via rail. And we're going to be releasing the coaches in a whole bunch of different paint schemes from railroads that had prototypes that were very, very uh Because bud, bud coaches, there's not such a huge difference from car to car as there are with the smooth side coach. Smooth side coaches, like every railroad was different. Bud has a much more of a consistent look from railroad to railroad. So uh, we'll be announcing those. Bills. So you, if you missed out on the Canadian, you'll be able to get a uh, assemble a complete train over a two-year period. We're starting with the park cars, and then after they come out, we'll start announcing every few months a new car, and then we'll release the, the, the locomotives as well. Uh, but if you really like our level of detail, and you don't model Canadian uh, Pacific, but you model New York Central United Pennsylvania Railroad or, or uh, one of those schemes, then you'll be able to pick up our bud cars as well. You can pick and choose which cars you want for your layout. You know, because we've had a lot of requests of people saying, you know, when are you bringing out your uh, Canadian cars painted for other road names? Because they say, you know, I, I'm not a rivet counter and I want that gorgeous bud passenger car painted for New York Central or whatever road, Rock Island. Uh, so we're going to be doing that because we've had a lot of requests for those cars. Because, I mean, you look at them, and, again, nothing has been done to that level of detail, whether it's the uh, underbody detail, the interior detail, or even the finish, our, the finish of our cars. Um, the guys who are, uh, who are really keen on getting that stainless steel finish to be accurate, they've said that we nailed it with our cars. I find a lot of the plated models coming from different manufacturers 
don't look right to me. They look more like a, a tin plate model to me. Um, our stainless steel finish was done after months of research with different materials, some of which were extremely toxic. Thanks God we didn't use any of those. Um, but a whole bunch of different materials uh, to get the, the right finish. And there's a whole process that we do to get that finish, including that it has to be done at certain temperatures. There are certain temperature ranges at which we have to apply the finish or it doesn't come out like that. So that kind of experimentation we did. Uh, I'm not a big passenger modeler, but uh, I did hear kind of through the grapevine that the the passenger cars for the Canadian are similar to the California Zephyr. Is that true? They are know? very similar to the California Zephyr, which and is and of course that's the one thing we're not going to do because uh, there have been a number of uh, very good models that the California Zephyr produced. I wouldn't want to sort of. I don't believe in a pissing contest. In a pissing contest, uh, you know. Everybody loses and uh, everybody gets wet at the same time, right? So I don't want to go head-to-head with uh, with Broadway with their uh, California Zephyr. So we'll bring it out in other paint schemes, but I wouldn't bring it out in, the, in that scheme. You know, so the, the California Zephyr guys are going to be, uh, you know, they can always buy, if, they, if they're really determined, they can buy a unlettered car from us and they can decorate it in California Zephyr. Well, that's a, that's a good point you make. We've got some of your undecorated uh cars, which are done in basic, uh, you know, just the plastic color? Yeah, the, the, the part of the bud cars will actually be finished in stainless steel. They won't, they won't be fully on deck. Okay, that was really my question. Are you going to provide them with, you know, the stainless steel finish yeah. and then you apply your own lettering and graphics? Uh, so many bud cars is, I mean, come on, it's just, it's just uh, very basic lettering. You just, you know, it's, it's a basically stainless steel car with some uh, road name in the letterboard and a number on the side. So, yeah, we'll be, I, I suspect that our, our stainless steel cars with no lettering are going to be very popular. Yeah, so. Uh, I, I would say so, absolutely. I mean, you could. Put Amtrak on the side of it if you want to. Yeah, do. Well, we are going to be cool. we are going to be doing Amtrak. We're definitely doing Amtrak. Uh, oh, you are okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Amtrak definitely. Uh, but obviously, we can't do all the Amtrak phases at once. We'll just we'll, we'll start with phase one and go from there. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see how they do. I, I'm I'm hoping they do well because I I think it really comes down to we have to let people know how our cars different from what's out there. Finish and the incredible detail. Uh, it, it's, it's great to, to chat with you about stuff like this because there are a lot of, uh, a lot of people who don't know who Rapido is still to this day. I mean, I've been doing this now full time for eight years, eight years this month. And, uh, our first release came out in late 2006. But, uh, you know, if you live in St. Louis or you live, um, uh, in California and, you know, you see an ad for a CN locomotive, chances are you're just going to flip past it to the next page. Uh, so people don't realize that we don't just do Canadian stuff. We do American stuff. Um, our Osgood Bradley cars have been hugely popular. Uh, the New Haven, Long Island Railroad, those things. So we're, we're quite well known in the Northeast and the Midwest, but there's a lot of people uh, in the South and the West who still think we make, you know, we we're a maker of N-scale locomotives in the 1960s, which, of course, is not the case. It's a totally different company. So uh, hopefully, you know, more as more people get to know it and see the level of detail in our model, they'll realize that passenger car is not the same as another passenger car. You can't just substitute one for the other. There's all this different manufacturers have different priorities. So, you know, Walters likes to bring out these incredible name trains and uh, there's a, certainly a huge market for that. But the amount of detail that goes into our cars, we couldn't bring out a name train a year. There's just no way. The, the, the sheer tooling expense 
to bring out uh, a name train a year in our level of detail is, is just, uh, I mean, the, the Canadian was the biggest thing that we ever did by far, and we, we almost bit off more than we could chew. Uh, it, it really sucked up our resources for two to three years doing that Canadian. I have a little bit of a story to tell you. Sure. Um, uh, I met this guy who's in a who's in another club, and he's a Canadian modeler. So I asked him, "Oh, you, you must use a lot of Rapido products, then?" And he looked at me and kind of like shook his head. He's like, "Oh, no, no, no! I I could I could never use Rapido because of the couplers." I'm like, I tilted my <laughs> my head sort of like a confused dog. I'm like, huh? <laughs> Inch scale Rapido couplers, yeah. You know what? You know he's an older guy, so I suspect yeah. that might have been the the company prior. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah, Rapido. When I was um, when I registered the name Rapido, I registered it, and then uh, Rapido Trains Inc. And I, the company's called after CN's crack passenger trains of the sixties and seventies, the Rapido. You know, the, the, my my three favorite trains are four. You know, is the Rapido, the Turbo, and the LRC. Well. Neither the LRC nor the Turbo sounded like a model train manufacturing company, so I went with Rapido. And it was after my name started getting out there, people started saying, so did you make those M-scale stuff in the 60s? I looked up and realized that you know, the Rapido from the 60s, being an HO modeler, I never even made the connection. Right, but thankfully, like their 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 trademark expired in 1982, so I don't have much to worry about. But model railroaders, we are... Number one, we we tend to be older. I'm on the younger age sort of side of the spectrum. I'm 38, but most of my buddies are in their 60s because most model railroaders are in their 60s. And I'm learning this as I get older, and I do things like you know I have to buy an optivisor, which I finally got last month. But uh, we have long memories, and and people remember Rapido like it was yesterday, even though it was 40 years ago. And I remember there was one guy on an online forum. Uh, this was just a, this was a few years ago. He said. Um, uh, I think it was maybe two, three years ago. He got into an online forum and was saying that Via Rail is always late. He knows he was talking to the BAMP station agent uh, just a little while ago, and this guy said that train time is late or never. And I responded by saying, Via hasn't been to BAMP in 19 years. <laughs> yeah, so it is late. <laughs> right now it's been 23, but Via, at that point, Via hasn't been to BAMP in 19 years. That was a long time ago. You're judging Via Rail today based on your experience with steam heated equipment in the 80s, right? You know, and I think it happens with us, especially. Uh, I was at the, the Ottawa show last year, and uh, and I had someone come to me and say, you know, I won't buy your cars because the floors are warped and the sides don't hold on straight. I said, yeah, our first release in 2006 had that problem. Have you looked at any of our cars released since then? What? So I said, pick that car up. This was a you know, club car, uh, which is not from our first release. Oh, that's solid. Oh, that's nice. Oh, look at the couplers at the right height. I said, yeah, because we fixed the problems, right? People have long memories, and it's hard. I, I just got a call from a hobby shop uh, six months ago where he said, I got to tell you, Jason, a guy in the club took one of your cars and threw it against the wall. He was so frustrated with it. I said, what car was it? It was a CM54. I said, was it a coach? He said, yeah. You mean the coaches from 2006? He said, yeah. I said, well, yeah, it was our first model. It wasn't perfect. We improved since then. Yeah, so sometimes it's hard to, to sort of let people know that, uh, that that we improve, we change, we get better. Every one of our releases, we, we try and uh, improve over the previous release. Yeah, so we're actually, those coaches from 2006, the body's been completely redesigned since that original release. So, you know, you got to try and communicate that to the customers. It's not always easy, but uh, you, we do our best. 
we do our best to let people know that that uh, we learn from our mistakes and we're always improving our models from release to release. Now, so well, there is a supplier out there who hadn't had problems with split gears, wrong gearing. You know, like you said, you repair, you you replace it, change the process, you just get on with life. Hey. Exactly, exactly. And it's nice when people give give a manufacturer a second chance. I know that uh, the turbo train was our first powered model. That's a great idea. Here's a first model. Let's take something that has is articulated with a pendular suspension with only four powered axles on a seven-foot-long train. That would be a great first-powered model. It just didn't run very well. We had the wrong gearing in the uh, in the trucks, and there was some des- uh, design flaws in the trucks. So we actually redesigned the trucks, and uh, and we offered the trucks to people, which was good. But then when it came to the FP9, we heard a lot of that. We heard people saying, well, I'm not going to get your FP9 because your turbo train just was a terrible runner. And uh, I said, well, you know, We've learned from that mistake, obviously, and you, it's hard to compare a big power diesel with four axles and a whole lot of weight in there with this, uh, you know, articulated lightweight train set with full interior in the engines. And uh, and thankfully, people did give us that second chance, and uh, we haven't had a single complaint about the running quality of the FP9. This thing will, at speed set one, happily tootle along at about half a mile an hour until the cows come home. You know, and it, it runs really nice. The pulling power. I, uh, I put a, I put an FP9 with an F, with one of our early F9B samples, and I pulled a 20 car train up a two percent grade without batting an eye. You know, so it's got serious pulling power. In fact, we had a real problem. The GMD1 model, not good, not good. The, the model will pull 36 cars. Okay, the prototype couldn't pull much more than 10. So I'm trying to tell people, your model will pull all your freight cars, but you still need to buy like three or four of them. You can't run one. CN, except for on very rare occasions, ran their GMD-1s as pairs because you tried to pull four freight cars up, like grain cars, up a little tiny grade from the uh, the elevator. Yeah, one couldn't do it. Yeah, it, that thing just could not pull to save its life. So we've gotten to a point where our model pulls too well. You know, so we've, been, we've been hoist by our own petard. Our model has got more pulling power than the real thing. We should all have those problems, right? Jason, just going back to the uh, modelers have uh, long memories. Um, to keep in mind too that our our models are like little time capsules. They yes. They we buy them from the hobby shop and they get put away and then ten years later they reemerge. <laughs> yes. So yes. we've ex- we've experienced that. We get, often get emails saying, "I finally opened the the cafe bar lounge I bought in 2007 and it's missing a coupler. Could you send us one?" <laughs> you know. So we look every model. I'm a modeler and I have been since I was a kid. I was I was scratch building underbody equipment when I was 13 for my CN via passenger cars and and replacing details on my FP9. I'm like every other modeler. I have a crawl space in my basement filled with hundreds of models. Some of them I know I will never get to. <laughs> I just won't. <laughs> yeah. And this this is the this is the reality of it, right? We all we all get so many models and we all have so many kits that it would take four or five lifetimes to complete them all. It's sort of like learning sitar. They say that it takes you one lifetime to get the skill and the next lifetime to master it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sitar's like that, man. Rabbi <laughs> Shankar just died a, a year ago, a few months ago. So there you go, one fewer sitar players in the world. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't think we have a category for that in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The, the sitar was right there with the keytar, you know, they're 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 hanging out. I uh, I'm, I'm a, when I was in high school, I was big into 1960s music, 
and culture, even though I was born in 1975. And so I was wearing bell-bottoms and beads in 1990. And, uh, and I never stopped wearing bell-bottoms. In fact, as I see, you know, we're, we're on audio here. You can, I'm wearing these elephant pants from the 70s right now that I got at a second-hand shop in Winnipeg, and they'd never been worn. They were meant for, you know, in the Navy pants, the Navy uniforms used to have these big flares on them. I'm wearing a pair right now. Yeah, so it yeah. occurred to me just the other day, I've been wearing bell-bottoms for longer than the original bell-bottom era lasts. <laughs> yeah, well, I think someone, someone referred to me in all honest, like he, he was being actually kind when he said it, that I'm, I'm part showman, part clown in the model railroad industry. And when you see some of the stuff I wear, my latest thing is wearing a Star Trek communicator during my presentations. You know, if it goes really well, really badly, I'm sort of tapping it, saying, hoping I'll get beamed out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Star Trek communicator. All right. I like Science that. fiction and model railroading does like They do mix very well, though. I would, you know, keep on dropping hints on the Doctor Who forum on the internet that I, you know, I make model trains and no one's thinking. <laughs> like, for some reason, like these 16 year old fans who are tick tapping on their phones all the time aren't getting into model railroading, but they're big into Doctor Who. So I'm hoping I'm just sort of leaving these crumbs, right? And that when they turn 55, bing, I got to go buy a model train. <laughs> And we get a lot of uh, husband and wife teams once they retire. The, they take an interest in each other's hobbies and say, we have all these women now helping their husband. You know, I'm going to build a chicken farm for my Okay, can you come explain that to my wife, please? I keep on saying stuff to her like, you know, look at this magazine article. See, they make trees together in front of the television. She turns to me and says, there's a coach in my basement. I'm not going to sit and make trees with you. There is a coach in my basement. And she keeps on repeating this. You know, I think that it's, it's some, some, as if it's not normal to have a full-size VRL coach in your basement, right? So. Well, that or we just got to get her into anger management uh, counseling. She is not letting go. <laughs> no, she's actually been hugely supportive, hugely supportive of my hobby. I remember when we got the house and I, a friend was over and I was telling her, okay, here I'm going to build a full-size VRL coach. Here I'm going to smash through into the garage so I can build a full, you know, a 12 by 45 foot layout. And he comes upstairs and he says to my wife, he says, Sidura, how can you let his trains take over the basement? And she said, without his trains, we couldn't afford the house. He said, good point. Hey, <laughs> touche. Good point. Touche. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, enough said. That argument <laughs> exactly. But she's very, very supportive. But when I try and sneak stuff in, you know, when I start saying like, hey, you know, what about a garden railroad? She says, this is nods and smiles and ignores me. Um, but, but she does allow, we do have uh, via rail coach seats in our living room. And she actually does like those. She accepts those there. And we have two club deluxe seats in our bedroom. She says those are there until we redo our bedroom. Then you're getting rid of them. So she is, she's extremely patient. But once you go into the basement, it is, it's train heaven. It's Jason oh, I mean, all the light fixtures come out of train cars. You look down at the end of the hall, and the, you, it looks like someone's pulled a train up and just parked. It just looks like someone's pulled a train up. And then, of course, you go in the train. You've got the sound effects. Though, in the, uh, the upper part of my basement, I have another recorder that plays uh, the sound, the ambient sounds of the central station platforms. I notice every time I turn that on, somebody turns it off. So I think that I think the only other person who has the know-how to do that's my wife. I think that I, that took things a little too far, you know. But it is fun down there. Well, cool. I mean, in a way, this is a modern take on the original uh, Superman that Gene Hackman played Lex Luthor, and he had that con or his place was in an abandoned portion of uh, Union yeah. Station. 
you've kind of taken that to a more functional, practical level. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be down there. And, I, you know, I go down to my basement, and I'm in heaven. And I, when we moved into this house, I, I said, because people say to me all the time, wow, you can't move now. There's a train in the basement, and you have no garage. And I say, um, I, I plan to be taken out of this house in a pine box. It'll be a long, long time from now, please, God. But, you know, I, I'm not moving. And, uh, and I think people who have always have their eye on, on, you know, can I get a better resale value for this house, it stops them from realizing their dream of that basement empire model railroad when they're always thinking, well, something better comes along, I'll move. You know what? Please, God, one day I'll make a lot of money from Rapido. Right now, I can pay my bills and just. One day, please, God, I'll make a lot of money. And maybe we'll be able to afford to get a bigger house. But we said this, is, this house is big enough for us. We never need a bigger house than this. It's about 2,500 square feet. It's four bedrooms. There's no reason. It's a middle-class house in a middle-class neighborhood. And there's no reason why, even if one day, you know, I'm a millionaire or something, there's no reason why we'd ever have to move. You know, we found a house. We love it. And because we, we have that attitude that I love this house, and even if I one day make it big, we don't have to move, that gives you the freedom to do stuff like build a train in your basement, like smash through the garage to build your layout. You've got a sense of permanence. And you know what? I may get hit by a bus tomorrow. And then, obviously, plans are going to change. But I'm going to not live my life as though I'm going to move or I'm going to die. I'm going to live my life as I'm going to live, and I'm going to enjoy myself. This is the hobby that I've dreamed of having that train, the train car in my basement uh, since I was 12. I've dreamed of having a big model railroad of the Kingston subdivision since I was five. And here I am living that dream. I'm loving it. And, yeah, crap happens. Maybe one day I have a fall or whatever, and we can't have that house anymore. That's it. So we'll deal with it then. Right? But in the meantime, I'm just going to enjoy that space and do what I can with it because I'm only on this planet once. I'm going to enjoy my time here and do what I can. And my, I love model trains. I love my Doctor Who and my Star Trek. I'm going to surround myself with the things that I love. And uh, I, think it's, I think everyone should have that attitude. Just sort of stop holding back. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking it's quite fortunate you were never a nuclear uh, missile submarine commander. Who knows what would be in your basement? <laughs> Forget the basement. What would be in a submarine? Yeah. Where'd you find those missiles? Uh, no, that's great, Jason. I think you've got the right attitude. Hey, on listen, that. I'll tell you a little quick story because, I, you know, I, I, I know I talk a lot, but hopefully you'll be able to edit something down to make this uh, only a 40-minute interview. So I, I was just in Saskatchewan, and I toured someone's layout. I toured a lot of layouts when I was on this tour, and, uh, and it was a beautiful model railroad he's been working on, sort of tootling on for the last 25, 30 years. And... The fellow is about 80 years old, and he's saying, I'm going to smash through here, I'm going to build this over here, and this town's going to over there, I'm going to smash through there. And I couldn't help thinking, you know, I don't know if, if you're going to have time to do that. Because, he, you know, he's getting on, and it's trouble for him to bend down and to be building up. He's got a, a, a good team of helpers, then sure, they can build all those things. But I was then... So it was a very, very powerful experience for me seeing this because he he loved, he wasn't thinking at all, I'm 80, you know, in 10 years I'm going to be in a wheelchair, right? He was just, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And uh, then I was on, on the phone with uh, with a modeler that I met who I really, really got along with. He's a CN engineer named Doug Hunter. And I said, Doug, how old are you? Doug said, I'm 66. I said, Doug, I want you to go and get that layout started. And the next time in Saskatchewan, I'm going to come run trains on your layout. You know, because there is no time like the present. You do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. You may, you know, I, I'm, I'm in benchwork stage right now. I plan to have a, a, a beautiful model of Spadina Yard, Union Station, downtown Toronto, the Kingston subdivision. I plan to work on it for 35 years, but I may fall off a cliff in three, right? There's no time like the present. You've got to get working on it and get building that layout. And there's so many of us that are talking about building a layout one day. And 
one day may never come. That's right. Get started now. And if you haven't got the space, build a module. Take part in a in uh, uh, an HO track uh, club layout, you know, or end track or whatever, and, and free mode, and and build something and get start running your trains, because it, it, there's no time like today, and I really feel that way. And even if I can get in an hour, I was in down in the basement until I ran out of screws yesterday, maybe three four hours, it was wonderful. And uh, look, tomorrow if I wake up early, I'm gonna go down for an hour because I got screws now, right? <laughs> go down for an hour and just build another two feet of benchwork. Right, and do a little bit of, and I'll turn around in 15 years and say, wow, I got something down here that's pretty cool. We have a, uh, had a customer at the store who collected for years and years and years, and this is what we're going to do, and tragically became terminally ill, and we're now helping his, uh, widow dispose of the, uh, the collection, but to your point, I tell people, don't be a collector. You've got to be, it's an active hobby. It's not passive. Get involved. And, and here I sit amongst all my Freemo modules. Wonderful. My feet hurt from standing up all weekend running trains. So. But you know what? You're running trains, and you're hey. Building. Well, I'm building stuff. I got. I got. I. I'm not really a permanent layout guy. I love modules, so that's what I have. I have massed this crazy ensemble of scenes. <laughs> that's fabulous. You know, you're a model railroader. You're a model railroader. Yeah. And you're building, right? Now, it's not everyone's dream to have. I mean, you talk to anybody in the UK, and the, you won't find any basement empires there, right? I mean, these guys, it's all about the, the portable layout, right, with fiddle yard to station scene to fiddle yard. But uh, you're modeling, and that's all that's important. There's so many different ways of modeling in this hobby. Uh, that the my vision of model railroading is very different from your vision of model railroading. The point is, though, that we're both model railroading. And I love bench work. Some people would say, I hate bench work. You know, that's not model railroading. That's building the wood. I don't care. I'm having a great time. Right, and if I end up don't uh, can't run a train for another six months to a year, so what? I'm I'm still model railroading. What? Uh, how wide is uh, a passenger car? Interior dimension? Uh, well, the exterior of a passenger car is generally ten feet. Some cars are wider. Some cars are cars are narrower. So uh, my coach interior dimensions are uh, about nine foot six. Okay, and then roughly just a. Scotch under 85 feet long? A real coach is uh, 85 feet over coupler pulling faces, generally. Uh, so the interior length uh, is going to be shorter. And uh, I've got in my basement a 20-foot slice of a via rail coach. So it starts at the vestibule. Um, you walk into the vestibule. I made the vestibule about three, four inches narrower than the prototype so I can fit more uh, room inside the car. And then you walk in and you walk past the luggage rack, the bathroom, which in my case is a little pantry area and a place for my record. And then, uh, and then I've got four pairs of seats. And a uh, very important thing, if you ever, if this is good if you're building a coach in your basement or just for building a layout room, think about ventilation. I've got a, uh, a register, a vent in the ceiling, and that I, I got a friend of mine, he does metal work. So he, he built a duct to, to go back to the actual real vent in the roof of the car. And then I put a vent, uh, actually from a Pullman sleeping car door, on the side of the car to keep the air flowing through. And uh, I'm part of a round-robin operating group, and the guys, even though, you know, we're, I'm still in the benchwork stage, they come by every few months. And we had um, 11 guys in that coach. And as long as the, the, the door was open to the vestibule, we did not feel stuffy or hot at all in there because the air was flowing through. And so when you're thinking about, and that's stuff we often don't think about in terms of model railroading, but if you're building a layout in the basement of the garage, you got to keep, keep in mind two things, insulation and airflow. Very, very important. Obviously, and humidity is another thing, um, which if you're generally good to have a dehumidifier unless you live, you live in Texas. You need to have a dehumidifier. 
uh, in your layout room to keep the humidity at a constant level throughout the year. A way to avoid that largely is use plywood as much as possible. You won't have many as many of the humidity problems that come with uh, with using dimensional lumber. You know, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's you got to think about you got to think about that stuff. You're you're creating a space that people want to feel comfortable in. You got to make it a comfortable space. And uh, and this is what uh, I concentrate on for my layout room. I've got registers, uh, three sources of air conditioning and heating in the layout room, um, and uh, and incredible insulation in the wall. It's the basement slash garage, so we had to properly insulate it. Um, I actually had a building inspector come by. <clears throat> and we decided on the installation with the building inspector, and he recommended how to. Our initial installation, he said, wasn't good enough. He said, you're going to have real issues of variations in temperature. And, of course, building inspectors, when they see you building a model railroad, if you're doing it according, if you're setting up the room according to code, they get really, they like, can you invite me and my kid over <laughs> to come run trains? Like, they're really in support. So he was willing to cut a little, a few corners according to city code. He said, well, if you do this, I won't make you do this and this and this because I recognize you want you got to run trains there. You, you you want as much width of the room as possible. But he was really really helpful. Yeah, so uh, best best to do things by code. Try and get an idea of what the codes are, and uh, and if you're doing any sort of changes to the room, get a permit and do it properly. You will not regret it. Permits are very inexpensive to get. I know I'm speaking from the city of Vaughan, but I'm sure throughout North America, permits are very inexpensive. But definitely cheaper to get a permit in advance, get the guy in while you're working on it to show you what has to be done, as opposed to having someone come on by accident and tell you you can't you can't have it like this. You have to rip out your walls and start again. Okay. Well, what maybe asked the question is because you've got your mildly amused about Ontario and uh, Quebec tour coming up. So I was thinking, boy, if you were going to do this, why not have a coach with a a model railroad in the coach for the tour, and then you raffle off the ability to operate as you go to these different towns, and you can donate the money to charity or whatever you want. Unfortunately, I, I would need uh, I need to rob a bank to afford to run any sort of real size equipment. That's <laughs> a problem. It's amazing how expensive it is. If you have to ask how much yeah. it costs to uh, to run a private car on on via rail or Amtrak, you cannot afford to run a private car on via rail or Amtrak. Let's put it that way. And uh, and I would definitely have to ask. <laughs> okay. All right. But so, do you have any idea? It's by the mile, right? Uh, give me an idea. If you wanted to run a car from Toronto, Montreal, you're looking probably about fifteen hundred bucks. To, shuffle, to, to put the car on your train, uh, six grand to move it to Montreal, fifteen hundred bucks to get it off the train. Unless you're bringing it right back, you've got to pay storage fees, which are exorbitant. Uh, your cars need to be fully Transport Canada approved, which means in the case of Via, you got full HEP in there. Um, you've got full safety labels and stickers and equipment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, your COTS is uh, another few grand every year. Um, maintaining real passenger cars is very, very expensive. Um, I know because I'm on the board of uh, the Toronto Railway Historical Association, we have our LRC locomotive, which we're in the process of getting back up to running. Um, and, uh, and real pieces of equipment are money pits. You have to have a real, real desire for that. Now, I am about to start the process of repatriating a couple of XCN via locomotives. Um, I've spoken to their owner. He is interested in them coming back to Canada. 
so I'm gonna I'm in the process of the starting to look at how to do that, whether to do it as part of the TRHA through a charity or to actually create a nonprofit corporation with the sole purpose of bringing these locomotives back to Canada. And I recognize that it's going to be very hard and very expensive to do, but it's very important to me um, to preserve our railway heritage. Uh, and if there's a risk that these locomotives are going to get uh, end up at the torch, uh, we got to do our best to save them. In the case of the LRC. What are, what are the models that you're looking at? FPA4 locomotives. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and so I'm looking at, at repatriating a couple of those. And, uh, and I'm also looking at down the line, uh, provided that Rapido can afford it, Rapido is going to get involved in hopefully purchasing a full-size uh, piece of uh, uh, some kind of uh, passenger car that we can paint up in, uh, in the black and gray 1960s Rapido scheme that we would then lease out to Tourist Railroad. So we'll look at that as well. But again, they are money pits. They're big money pits, and uh, and you have to go into it eyes wide open. You really do, because uh, full size equipment costs a lot of money, and that's why you have so many examples of people trying to get rid of full size equipment that they bought for you know five ten grand from the railroad say twenty years ago, and they, and then they just decayed. And they, de- and, and they decay and they decay and they, they just, you need to pump 20 grand into a passenger car every year to maintain it. And this is one for a tourist line or for preservation, not for mainline service. Easily they cost 20 grand a year maintenance. Had no idea. Yeah. And so there's a lot of guys with good intentions. They put together the purchase price, they move the thing to their club or whatever, and then it just falls apart and then 20 years later it's scrapped because at that point you don't have to put in 20 grand a year, you gotta put in a quarter million. Right, and so it's it's uh, it's very expensive to 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 save full size equipment like that, unfortunately. You know, they do it in the UK, and I wish that that we had the numbers here. The UK, I my guess, I may be way off. I bet there's two million serious rail fans in the UK, um, uh, easily, out of a population of sixty million. And whereas I'd put the number of serious rail fans in North America at maybe a hundred thousand. You know, so they, with our population of 350 million, right? So they have, uh, there's a huge, uh, um, heritage railway, uh, community in the UK, and that's how they can save virtually every class of locomotive. And here in North America, like right now, museums are doing their best to stop their, their F units from falling apart while GP40s are being scrapped left, right, and center. You know, so we're, because we haven't got the, those numbers to support the heritage industry as much as we'd like, all these second generation diesels being scrapped. You know, and it's going to get to a point where what's left, what's left is all the ones that the railroads keep, you kept using and kept modifying. So that when you go to a museum in 40 years and you want to see a Jeep 40, you're going to see one that was nowhere near the way it was in the 70s. It'll be the one that's been modified 30 times to, to make it to 2025. You know what I mean? So, and that, that is, it's a crying shame about our, our preservation, uh, community here is that we haven't got that critical mass to, uh, to, to, to keep the, uh, uh, the museums as healthy as they should. I'll say obscene example of that is when we collectively, the United States, let the four ALCO PAs go south across the border. Yeah. Well, there's and one you know, it's the three of them are Hulks and one of them's near Hulk. There's only one FPA four in Canada, um, and this is a a this locomotive was ubiquitous from Winnipeg to Halifax, 
or for 30 years, and there's one in Canada. And the, the rest are in service in the States or they're retired and starting to decay. Again, you cannot leave a locomotive sitting in a yard for 20 years and, and think that, oh, well, one day I'll get it running again. You know, you, and doesn't the uh, Cuyahoga Scenic down in Cleveland area yeah. have a couple uh, of FPA fours? Um, Napa Valley, Grand Canyon, New York and Lake Erie. There, there, there are FPA fours scattered about. Um, and that's why uh, I am in, in discussions with one, one organization about bringing two back to Canada. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, they are, they, luckily they haven't all been torched. That's the good thing. Uh, when it comes to something like the turbo, you know, it is still to this day the fastest train in North American history. The fastest production train, it's faster than the Acela, was the United Aircraft Turbo Train. And by 1984, they were all tin cans. It all been converted to tin cans. And, uh, and nothing was saved. I mean, a, a scrap here, a bit there was it. You know, uh, the, the, the turbines were returned to Pratt & Whitney. One was kept for the museum in Quebec. Um, but that's just the actual turbine from inside the engine. It's not the actual power car with the seats and everything. They were all scrapped. And there are other examples of trains that are going to be scrapped because we haven't got the resources to save them. And uh, I really hope that some very kind, wealthy people <laughs> to show up out of the woodwork and say, whenever you read about those billionaires, like the, like uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who, who created Facebook, you look at a guy like that and say, why aren't you a real fan? Why can't you be a real fan? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, get Bill Gates involved. Yeah. With his what could we do? What could we do with a billion dollar railway heritage fund that is ex- exclusively meant for saving and restoring equipment? You can save every piece of equipment in North America that we that we need to save with a billion dollars. You know, forget saving. We could restore them. We could make them beautiful. Get them running. You know, and this is chump change to these people, and it's amazing. But, you know, it's I would love one day for there to be a working turbo. Like you know, they 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 sometimes like in the UK they 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 built an A1 uh, or an A sorry an A3 from scratch the tornado. You know, wouldn't it be great if some billionaire could be a turbo fan and could say, I'm going to pay the 10 million bucks to, to, to make a turbo from scratch to run on the main line. You know, but you can always dream, right? Yeah. Well, and I guess with the uh, latest move by UP, we'll see how much it costs to restore and operate a uh, big boy. Yeah. And, uh, that's something that's measured in beyond just money because of all the time, <laughs> oh, yes. you know, all the unseen time that will go into fixing it, you know. Of course. Because one of those projects is a labor of love, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I understand, but I'm also just, numbers fascinate me, so I'm quoting, I wonder how big that nut will be when they finally get it uh, cracked. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, more power to them. I hope they do well, it quickly. Well, UP has the resources to do it, you know. <laughs> It's, I, mean, I wish I wish that more of our Class One railroads had a real interest in heritage, you know, not just occasionally donating a locomotive to a tourist group or whatever or a museum, but but actually, you know, saying here we're going to donate to you this GP40, and by the way, we've restored it to operation and painted it in 1976 colors, you know, they've got the resources to do it. It's a drop in the bucket for them. And for us in the, with the railway preservation industry, we got we got to fundraise for a year to do the same thing. You know what I mean? So uh, it's it's 
it's unfortunate that there's not more of an interest in preservation. So I'm really imp impressed with what UP's doing. Right. I even like the uh, the graffiti versions of a couple of your uh, caboose. Yeah, the uh, graffiti, you know, look, I'm not a fan of graffiti. I, I regard it as vandalism on my model railroad. There will no be no graffiti on my layout. But if you're modeling modern railroading, it's a fact of life. And uh, and the technology has now progressed where we actually use a printer that can print onto 3D surfaces, right? So it's used for people printing stuff like promotional gifts and gadgets and what have you. And we do a, what we do is we actually take the photograph of a graffiti car. We shrink it down to HO scale. We, we pad print the white or directly on the car. And then we use this four color printer, just like a printer you have at home. And we print out the photo on the side of the model. And it's a new technique. It works really, really well. And it ends up with phenomenally, uh, realistic, uh, graffiti on the cars, right? So those are an example where, a hobby shop gave me a call and said, we want to do a graffiti car. I said, do you have photos? He said, yes. We said, okay. And that was that, right? So we did one for Prairie Shadows, did one for George's Trains. And if any hobby shop were to come to us and say they want to do a custom caboose, they want to do a custom passenger car, uh, et cetera, we're all for it. Uh, obviously, it's much easier to do if we're already doing that model. So if we're making coaches and you come and say, I want to do a custom paint scheme on a coach, your minimum order quantity is going to be much smaller than if you say, I want to do a custom FP9, even though you're not making FP9s anytime soon. Um, so then I'll say, well, if you want to do a custom FP9, we have to, we have minimums in terms of how many uh, circuit boards we can get, how many metal parts we can get, the wheel, the turned wheels, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, but if we are making the car at the time, if, you, if we ever announce a product and, and someone wants to do a custom run, when we announce it, it's when to get in touch and say, let me, you know, when you, after your order deadline, I want to make a custom run with you, or I want to announce it now, and we'll, you know, you'll do it with your run. And I'm always open to that. If it comes to a, a unique number, say I'm, I'm making five coaches, you want to do a sixth coach with a different number just for your club, uh, we need about 60 to 80, depending on the product, uh, of a custom run. Um, you want a, a unique paint scheme, depending on the paint scheme, it's anywhere from two to 300 pieces as a minimum for a custom run. So it's not... Uh, crazy numbers. You don't have to make a thousand, right? So uh, a number of people, even CSX has come to us in the past. We did a custom run of cabooses for CSX, you know. And I, I pointed out, you know, our caboose is a Canadian Pacific caboose. Yeah, we don't care. It looks great. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I could squint and uh, buy into that uh, yeah. application for U.S. Road. We, we now sold. For Via Rail Canada, we've sold hundreds and hundreds of cars as custom ones for them. And why? Because it's their cars, right? So they, we, we, we developed a relationship together very early on. And they, they would call me and say, what have you got to make for us? We want repeat products on our trains. And uh, I said, well, at that point, you know, we got LRCs. Well, you know, one wants LRCs. I don't know what that is. So then when I said we got park cars, they were like, bingo, we can do park cars. And so the problem was, we did a run of park cars, and they announced it to the public. I did it for my newsletter. That's how I announced it, to the, the VRL park cars. And they sold out in about two weeks. <laughs> so before the park cars even arrived, VIA was sold out of park cars. So that was the end of their plan to carry them on board. Yeah, so there are two new cars we're working on for VIA Rail Canada. 
And so always stay tuned to our Rapido News uh, newsletter because that's where we announce all this stuff. Okay. Words to the wise. Well, that does it for this month's Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. Chris, Jim, and myself, thank you for listening. So we'll see you next month. Well, you won't. we won't see ya. You'll hear us. You'll hear us next month. Yeah, that works.